bananas. It's like one more thing that I just realized that I know very little about. So crew, yep. I think they have a crew team there. UT. Yeah, they raced I'd, down the canal or something, right? I'd be surprised if they didn't, for sure, based on the location <clears throat> and what they have with Lake Austin right there. But yeah. my thing was, you're telling me that when you did crew, I rode, but I did. I wasn't a lightweight. That's a lightweight. That's called lightweight. Okay, so you were in the big boy boats. Yeah, of course. Do I look like I, I couldn't make? How tall are you, big boy? Well, Bill? Six three. That's it. There's just no way I make uh, 160 pounds in my weight. I'm, I'm too big bone. I'm too Swedish for that. When do you think the last time in your life was when you were 160 pounds? Eighth grade. Shut up. Seventh grade. Shut up. <laughs> Probably. How tall were you then? I don't know. Six foot. All right, so you were still know. growing. I was, I was still grade. growing. Yeah, I don't know. How do you know how tall you were in eighth grade? I hardly remember. Well, if you kind of remember your weight, right? So I'm like, well, I'm you... just guessing. I just remember when I was a senior in high school, I was 205. Did you play sports? Yeah, but I was overseas. So we didn't have football. And... Oh, that's all right. Well, we're going to get into the story. So, all right, all right, all right. first of all, thanks for coming. Why don't you introduce yourself to all these people? Yeah. So, my name is Bill Clark. I work for Microsoft. Um, been with them for as a vendor for about nine years and then as an actual FTE for the last six. So it seems like forever in the data center world. Yeah, but, just um, getting started 15 years there, huh? Yeah, so 07, and I'm terrible with math, so that probably doesn't work out specifically to 22. But Where are you originally from? Uh, so born in Japan, raised in Africa. Okay, explain all of that. So parents were missionaries. My mom was, uh, when I was a single woman to Japan in like 1951 or something like that, like the war had just ended a little while ago. Your mom went there in 51? By herself on a on a cargo boat <clears throat> back in the day. And, and she was a missionary then? She was a missionary, learned. Fluent. Where was she from? Seattle. Okay. Yeah, that's our Seattle connection that we're gotcha. all from. So she lived there um, five years, fluent in <clears throat> Japanese. She was up in the villages where they had never seen an American. They had never seen a white person before. Um, and, you know, again, they just lost the war to oh, the Americans. Oh, sure, so everyone's in So it was really, she, and she's like a five foot 11 uh, Norwegian walking around with all these Japanese. So she definitely stood out. Uh, came home, met my dad. Then they both decided to go back out for another five years. And then three of the four of us kids were all born in Japan. So on, your mom started in Japan met your father back in the States, and then they together went to Africa, but you were still No, I went to Japan. Oh, I'm sorry. Went back to Japan, then we were all born there. Okay. Came home to the States, because that, in the day, missionaries used to do, that was kind of the deal, I don't know why, five years, and then you come home for a year, before they had big, you know, airplanes and all that, their cargo ships and all that. So anyway, so came home from the States, and then then uh, decided to go to Africa. So Liberia, which is on the west coast um, of of Africa by Ivory Coast. And so that's where pretty much I grew up from fifth grade to graduate from high school. So prior to that, though, were you pretty fluent Japanese? I was, you know, we left when I was three. So oh. that three-year-old could could in the... <laughs> Speckin' the Japanese. the Japanese can at still a three-year-old level. You can and still master all, those no. chopsticks? Yeah, that's about all the Japanese I know is whatever I can do with these. Oh man, so, you're such a discipline. Lost it all. You would be a lot cooler if you talk about like how you do the bowing thing still. My and... right brain is like gone. I think that's where language is. Your right side, and I don't have that. Oh, same I got thing you. with artistic ability. That's the right side. I have that same thing, but on both sides. Yeah, that's so right. you know, never know where you're. So, uh, so Japan, and then to Liberia, and then did you mm -hmm. have to? Were you in like an expat type of school? Yeah. Or? So it was, 
uh, there was an embassy school. I went to a boarding school. I went to like 11 schools before I graduated from high school. So I jumped around a lot. But um, <clears throat> the school there was run by the American embassy. Back in the day, I really dating myself, they didn't have satellites. And so all the communications, Liberia seemed to be really good for radio communication. So all the communications from the U.S. embassies would go to Liberia and then to New York or then to D.C. And so big, like, uh, big embassy personnel because of that need. And so they had a lot of families there. And so they had a school there for all of it. Okay. So I grew up there. How, what grades? <clears throat> like fifth grade to, to graduation. Get out. Yeah. I went to a boarding school for a little bit in the middle of all that. But anyway. Not where they just send bad kids? Yeah. Uh, relates. relates. <laughs> so when you were there, did was was there anything that you were learning culturally besides, I mean, maybe the language, maybe how to cook their food? Or? Yeah. So Liberia is freed slaves who decide to come back from America. Monrovia is after President Monroe who helped make that happen. And so Liberia is the only independent country that was never colonized in Africa. And so um, it was very, uh, it's not as, not as well off as some of the other countries that had a European back at the time. Like Ivory Coast is French and the French put a lot of money into the infrastructure and so on where Liberia didn't get that. So they had to fight their way through it all. So a little poor, definitely third world, grew up in a third world country, you know, no radios, no TVs, none of that stuff. I think there was one radio station at the time. Really? Um, so, yeah, road motorcycles all over, you know. So you get this kind of a small town feel and also third world feel of of living in, you know, like in Africa and what you would think about. It. We lived up in the jungle for about a year and then came back. And How do you like it? Um, it's, you know, it's an interesting, you grow up as a minority too, which is, I think has been a great, uh, not a, I don't know if a great help, but definitely a different perspective, you know, come. How's that? Well, because you're the white guy, you know, you're the. So you know what it felt like to be. Yeah. You kind of feel like when, when everyone around you is not. And so you, you kind of understand when some people feel that they're, they're ostracized just because of what they look like, because nobody else looks like them. And that's not. It might not always be the case, but just since humans are so visual, we run into a lot of that of, you know, just everybody looks different. So now I feel a little different than anybody else. Did you uh, ever feel threatened from that? No. You never felt no, like No, there was... was a coup after I left. Typical Africa has coups all the time, sadly. Um, but it was it was really pretty friendly. Had a lot of, you know, a lot of my friends were Africans um, growing up with them and uh, the school was for embassy or also anyone who could pay the money, which ended up being more of the, like the depart the uh, secretary of education gave a graduation speech um, at because uh, his son was in it. So I knew a lot of the uh, higher government officials' kids because they sent their kids to the school, which really? was sadly because then when the coup happened, a lot of those guys were killed. A lot of their family members were killed and they had to escape. And Really? So you get that what happens in a country when a coup comes in and takes over. And so those were the, oh, okay. So your friends that were the local Africans, they were the ones that were killed, but not the, yeah. not the expats. Not, not most of the expats had left by then, you know, we kind of, the embassy tells people it's time to go, you know, and they get out and it was really, that coup was definitely take over the government and the, you know, the um, expats aren't involved in that. So you, by, hurting them or doing anything with them, you're not going to gain anything where, where you have fighting tribes of, or fighting groups of who wants to be in charge. Salute. Salute. You, 
Never had this before, you said? Mm-mm. It's one of my favorites. I used to have a hard time. I haven't been to this barbecue place either. So. What do you think about that? It's a little free free advertising for them. And, you know, they're hardly making it, I could tell. Yeah, that place oh, is bananas. But I'll tell you, I, I don't think they make barbecue like that in Liberia. No. No, I haven't had a really good barbecue until I came here. I'm from Seattle. You know, it's West Coasties. Don't have bad, good barbecue so, either. So, so why did your parents just know? What do you think about that, by the way? I like it. It's smooth. It's tasty, huh? It's not too hot either. Mm-mm. So when you're, did your family have a sense? Did they get out ahead of the coup because they just couldn't um, read the tea leaves better? Or did they just happen to be gone? No, the embassy. So I had already left for college. My sister and I had both a year apart, and we had left for college. And so it was just my two brother and sister and my parents were there. And then things deteriorated, and then um, there was literally takeover by uh, the military. And then um, they from locked. From who, though? Uh, so it was a coup from the In- military? Internal. The- yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Most, you know. Yeah. It wasn't another country. It wasn't an invasion. It was a coup. Normally they're backed by a neighbor that's like. Yeah. That. This was. Uh, so the politics of Liberia is um, a lot of the freed slaves who came back form the government and they end up being the upper class so if you could trace your roots back to coming on the boat then you were the upper class in liberia politics and then the tribes that were already there the people that were living there were the more of the lower class Mm. so it was really a class system in typical third world you have an upper class and a lower class you have no middle class or a very small middle class and that's what you had there was very very poor or they thought was very rich and the poor want to take the rich. So the poor end up being the military and end up making that move. So, so you had uh so you have an older sister and then a younger. No, I'm the oldest. Uh, it's boy, okay. girl, boy, girl. Gotcha. So how much older? What's the age differences? Uh, 18 months for my, my sister and then a couple of years for my brother and then six years between the youngest sister and me. So when you were there and you graduated high school there, how big was your high school? We had 32 in our graduating class. Is that big? Sounds yeah, big, about actually. average, 30. Okay, so about 100, you know. That's K through 12, people. yeah. So there's well, maybe. That's K through 12. Okay. K through 12, probably 200 kids total. Okay. So Is small. that cool, going to school? Yeah, you know, it's typical. I mean, we had huge, you see Liberia, it's a long, huge ocean beach. So you have all sorts of beaches and you have, everyone's riding motorcycles, you know, because it's the cheapest way and you don't really need driver's license very much and. So it's kind of a small town feel, you know, you grow up and because there isn't multimedia there is now, everybody goes and does stuff together because there's nothing else going on. Sure. There's no TV to watch. Yeah. Like I said, there's one radio station and or two radio stations. So did you learn how to surf? You know what? And they do have surfing in Liberia and they uh, just, I just saw they had a surfing competition there for the first time. Wow. So weird. Do you ever keep up with any of those people that you met? Yeah. We have, you know, there's Facebook. (laughs) <laughs> Facebook helped bring that together. There's the American Cooperative School Facebook page. Really? Uh, and there's a few that I, I know. But the issue, of course, is your families are there, but you're not from there. So when you leave, they go to the all over the world. So you don't, like, all meet up in California where you went to high school, you know, or, sure. or Washington. You have to go and do, like, a college reunion where you all get together somewhere because everyone's from somewhere else. So, so you- very rare. Well, when you graduated from there, what did you do? Went back to states. Where at? Southern California. Where did you go to school? A Biola University, little Christian uh, 
school down there in La Mirada, California, and sure. thought I'd go, you know, um, family business, go to school there, and then go to, uh, you know, go and uh, like study at the beach and stuff, and that ended up really doing terrible for my GPA. So, uh, <laughs> well, what was the biggest change? Was it going from a thirty people in your graduating class to no? It's all, it's the cultural change, culture change of coming to America and seeing the abundant wealth and how everything compared to what you you know third world where you grew up and having anything you want at a store and you know those things are what blows you away like mcdonald's and happy meals and well yeah and just a grocery store or a hardware store or you know like anything. everything's easily available you mean yeah yeah that's especially where you were living in southern california but you know I'm, you're also yeah you're also a college student and you know all of a sudden you're seeing thousands of of people that you you know like you said from a small town to a big town and um so it's all is all overwhelming for a little while you know until you get the hang of it and some people don't i mean there's a big whole trend um people have talked about it on how um kids who grow up in cultures have a real problem they're not adjusting they may live in one culture but they're not really part of that culture and then they come back to their country and they're not part of that culture either because they don't have the same things that they do you know they don't have the same remembrances as your junior high or your high school your music you listen to because they're embedded in another culture but that's not theirs either so they're caught between cultures what made you uh decide not to go be like mom and dad um not that it was uh i was gonna fly i was gonna be a pilot for a long time um, and do missionary flying and stuff like that and then um just slowly kind of rolled out and then um, as I got closer to graduation from college, I started to get interested in the military. So that was kind of, I got to see the world, see things. So that turned into a bigger, bigger, I mean, ex- attraction, I guess at the time. When you were and in the mil- when you were in college, at what point did you consider the military? Not, so I still say this. I wasn't, I was standing there. There was a Marine Corps recruiter in our commons at our college as a, and I was a sophomore and he goes, I want you to think about joining the military and, and, and you just owe us, we'll do your scholarship and then you owe us, you know, four more years after that. And I looked at him, you want me to commit six years of my life right now? And this, it, I was like, there's no way in heck, I can't even do what I'm doing next semester. <laughs> so I was definitely not ready for that immaturity at lit level. Sure. So the, the whole, the West Points and Naval Academy, all those all those kids deciding to join, you know, doing really. four years of college and then eight years in the military or whatever is is really unbelievable to me. But it wasn't until I gra- get ready to graduate from college that I decided. Why? Um, Why then? Um, you know, I, I was I was coaching. I was going to be a coach. What were you coaching? And I was coaching crew. I, I had rode crew did? in college. Oh, okay. Is um, that where you learned it, though? Is that where I learned it, yeah. You know, especially in America, unless you're on the East Coast. West Coasties don't have a lot of crew teams in high school or so sure. on. But in college, we learned to row. And um, so what I did that. What made you go out for it? What? What made you go out for it? My next door neighbor was an Olympic oarsman. <laughs> Throw out to a guy named John Twilliger, who's from Wyoming of all places. And he learned to row and uh, he was rowing. And I said, I need to get in freaking shape. And he goes, Well, come on out. Shut up. So was it all, all on the boat or were you yeah. using those trainers? No, or? you just on the boat. Row, rowing your butt off. How much would you guys row? Like, what's the most you've ever rowed? Uh, we used to row around Mercer Island in Seattle for a fundraiser, so that was about thirty miles How long around it? it, and then so that'd take us probably six hours of rowing. 
of just going Man, around the. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, I can do it in a motorboat so much faster. I, it would really take me no time at all if I was just driving. Um, so yeah, they Six we'd hours. row and row and row. Yeah, we you know try to raise money so much per hour or whatever, and then we'd row all the way around and. So it was kind of fun. Did you have to take time. turns, like, no, everyone would. Okay. If you a shell, a shell, you're single seated. There's eight of you in a boat, and you have a one oar going out one side, one oar port and starboard, and you all have to row in unison. That's they always talk about teamwork and teams yeah. and all that, and because of crew, because everybody, the more you are in sync together, the more the faster the boat will go. If so, one person's out of sync then the boat slows down. <clears throat> wow. Well, who's the most powerful rower, the person in the front or the pair of back? So the person in the front is this the stroke or he sets the pace. He or she sets the pace. And then the widest part of the boat is right after that, so we call that the engine room. So the bigger guys are in the middle there. So most of the time they're the stronger guys. And then as you get near the end, you need a lot more finesse because they're so far away from the beginning. You know, they have, they're, they're watching. They're timing, yeah. Yeah. And so you end up with lighter guys, but more finesse guys. Were you so, engine? Yeah. If you have no finesse, you're just pounding it out. You're in the engine room. All right. So that's and then how I do they was. steer? Who's the guy that's... Coxswain. Well, I want to teach you everything, aren't you? Listen, man, this is why you're here. So right? I know this whole podcast. You're like, <laughs> what are we talking about? Um, the coxswain is the one who sits a guy or a girl, has to weigh at least 140 pounds, 120 pounds. And they sit in the back and they have a little paddle, a little rudder in the very back of the boat. And they... They set the pace. They tell you when to go faster or slower. And they're also, they're the closest to that stroke or talking to them. And then they also um, can maneuver the boat a little bit. But I mean, you know, shells are not meant to turn. Okay. So it's supposed to be a straight, you know, they're 30 feet long. So sure. they, have a, they have a rudder that's very tiny. Okay. So it's just more for maneuvering at slow speed to get around something. But the races are 2,000 meters, hopefully straight line. So uh, you're in college and somebody introduced it to you and then you got into it and then you were coaching it when you were getting ready to Yeah, go so then the, you know, there's high school teams in Seattle that um, because we're right on Lake Washington, Lake Washington, you know, and Lake Union, other places, and University of Washington is a huge powerhouse and crew. So there is a few um, high school teams. And so we started coaching that. My my turn-to-be wife at the time, she was in, she and I met there in, in uh, Seattle Pacific. Um after crew. you graduated high school? No, while we were Seattle Pacific is another college I went to. Ah. I can't stick with one college. I went to like three or four before it was all over, but that was the last one. Okay, is that where you graduated from? Yeah, I think so. There should be a diploma somewhere with my name on it. But so where do you 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 went back to Seattle because that's where your family? Yeah, we kind of migrated back, uh, went back to Seattle, and then um, I have a lot. My family has a big history at Seattle Pacific. But I said I'd never go there because, you know, all the rest of my family went there. But they ended up going there. Ended up sucking myself back into that. And they had this crew thing. So I started that. And so, How was it? So coached it. And then I was thinking I was going to get into coaching, you know, in high school and college and stuff. And then um, just kind of got enamored with joining the military. Where and you had you hadn't graduated from college yet then? No. When I first started thinking about it, no, I was still in college. So you got enamored with it in which way? I mean, was there a movie um, you watched? Or? I think the camaraderie was some of the things that I really loved about. I loved about crew and I loved about coaching and about you know, that team concept. And the military is really big. And be part of something bigger than yourselves. You know, when you live overseas a lot, you end up being the American 
uh, voice in some cases because people don't know any other Americans. So whatever policy comes out of America, they turn it's to the, the American gospel, and go, yeah. why would you do that? Go, I don't know. It's the government. <laughs> but you're the only American they know. So um, when I got, you know, I started thinking about it. I, I really want, I wanted to travel. I wanted to see the world. I was love traveling. And so this gave me a great opportunity to do that. So that's what we did. I, that's what I did as I joined Join the frickin' army. I am the I am the poster child on how not to do it, because I went, paid for my own college, no then joined, then joined the army, then became an officer, so that you know I don't need the government to pay for me. Of course not. So it's just uh, a dumb way of doing it. But anyway, that's how it that, worked out. That is the dumbest way of doing I it. I know. So, but when you did it, like, did you lose a bet or something? I mean, why did you go? In I the was army? eleven. But yeah, so the navy. Yeah. First, I can't take a. My stomach will not take on oceans. Um, I went in as 11 Bravo, which is an infantry guy. Hold on. So you were in, yeah, just like Jesse. Yeah. And Airborne so, Ranger option. Went the whole nine yards. Recruiter loved me. So he you just, graduated college and enlisted. Yep. Good Went Lord. in as 11 Bravo PFC, private first class. No kidding. And the recruiter loved me. I'm sure I made his month for recruiting on points because he got all those little, signed up for five years, did all that. Got to Fort Benning, Georgia, lovely Fort Benning, and halfway through they offered me officer candidate school. So, um, and I was going to go Fort Lewis as a Ranger battalion, so I was going to go back there. I left Kelly was, my wife was still there, and she was a cop. She was a a Pierce County police officer at the time, and so I was going to be, uh, you know, I'd be at, I'd be at Fort Lewis. It'd, it'd be perfect. I had a house. I would just drive down the road. To work every day, yeah. Especially if you join the military because you want to travel. <laughs> yeah. So then you learn these things called the needs of the Army. That's a great saying they try to do. Mm -hmm. And so the needs of the Army was not what I wanted, but what they wanted. So uh, joined. So I stayed, became an officer candidate, went to, became, and then they offered. Was that in Fort Benning as well? It's all at Fort Benning. That's one of the reasons they offered it is because it's right there at Fort Benning. And okay. so I was selected, and then uh, they said, you're going to be a signal officer. And I said, what the hell is that? And they said, oh, it's radios. Radios and these new things called computers. I said, okay. Don't know anything about any one of those. But you, so they just randomly, the needs of the Army decide, decided what you do. Because yeah. you weren't you coming You get a choice. You, you have 10 choices. They actually make, I think they laugh. They they had 10 choices on what, what which way you go when you come out of officer candidate school. And then they decide. Now, if you're officer candidates, if you're uh, 10 years as an enlisted and you're an infantry guy, in most cases, they're going to make you an infantry officer. Sure. But um, when I had only had, you know, a year or two years as an infantry guy, they they need, they had the need. And every next class could have a need for artillery officers, you know, as the priority. So then they make everybody, you know. The, sure. So the needs of the Army were signal at the time. So I became a signal officer. How'd that work out? Pretty good. Look yeah. where I am now. Right? <laughs> only because of that am I where I'm at now. Because... I got into radios and then computers, laptops, computers stay around. And then at the end, I mean, by the end of my career, my 20 years career, I was, we had servers in striker vehicles or in vehicles. So, you know, we're running Unix and all the stuff out of, out of the back of vehicles. So, um, the transformation, of course, as the whole world is transformation is huge, especially in the military. So, um, I mean, one could argue, 
I wouldn't trivialize your job as just making sure all comms were up, but like we couldn't go into combat without. So every stuff. every combat unit has a signal officer. Yeah. Um, and uh, so they run all the networking. You know, you don't have everybody on one radio signal, right? You have multiple channels, and you're cross connected with everybody else. Um, and then you own you own all the repair guys and all the radio guys and. So it's you know it gets a little more complicated, and then when we got into servers, then you're running networks so over you're, air in the middle of the deserts. What does what does Uncle Sam do to teach you all these things? Like yeah. other than saying you're in charge of IT or whatever. So they have a lot of great classes for smart people. And it's just not me. <laughs> so all my stuff is OJT on the job training. Really, I just learned you know as you're going through it and doing it and just a little nerdy. Um, I mean you know and then things happen so fast that they would deploy things to the field before they really had time to train it. So you learn it as you go. And they do stuff on, and I also surround myself with a lot of smart kids. You know, as I got older, they were kids. And um, yeah. so they're doing it and I'm just managing the the hoopla, you know, and so, well, you got so, this buddy, right? So we're you're gonna in fix this problem tonight. <laughs> so you get in though, and then, you know, you're in for a year or two, it sounds like before you decide to go the officer path. Right. Yeah, so I did 11 Bravo. I was, I, was, I consider this, this the most powerful corporal in the United States Army because you're in a drill school. They keep you at drill school and you become a corporal. And so everyone's screaming at ease and because you're a drill, you know, you're not a drill sergeant. But anyway, so you hang out there and help train troops until you get to go to OCS. And then you go on to and, become an officer. So when you did that... <clears throat> What did you pick? Did you pick signal officer? Did you pick I mean, it was on the out of the ten. There's probably three or you know, I think it was like second or third. What Maybe, else? What were the other ones? Well, infantry because I was already an infantry guy, um, you know. So I thought that would probably be the way I was going to go. And then you know, I, I don't even know if I had military intelligence because I know I'm not that intelligent. I was like, you and intelligence the same uh, way. That's think? not going to work. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't even hardly remember. I just remember signal being a pretty big surprise. Like, really? Okay, but you weren't upset. I mean, you know, you can be all upset all you want. No, I get big you. Like, a, big A Army decides, you know, that's what you're going to do. And no, you can't you. just say, I quit. You know, that's that ain't going to happen. So, you but, you know, I, I kind of, everybody goes to their strengths, right? And I felt my strength was more, better served downrange than being in an office kind of environment. So I spent most of my career downrange. I was at brigades or lower combat units 90% of my career. And um, what would you be doing floating in and out of those? So, I mean, again, you're as you move up in a bigger unit, you have more communication systems to deal with. And, like, in the very end, um, you're do dealing with core size. So 10,000 people are deploying in the middle of nowhere, and you're setting that network up for those 10,000 people to talk over satellite, FM radio, AM radio, um, you know, sh uh, microwave because we have, you know, servers running. So all that networking has to be put together and, you know, what unit's going to do what and who has what equipment. And so that all falls into your planning, signal planning as you work your way through it. One of my, my, one of my last things I did was Cobra Gold, which was a huge exercise we do in, Th in Thailand every year. And it's with the Marines and with the Navy, the Air Force, everybody joins. And then they go to Thailand and you do an exercise with the Thais. And... Um, it's it's all on paper, you know. It's all, um, you know. You're just you don't really have an enemy to fight, right? Yeah. So you're doing all on. So Hawaii is the bad guys. So you have to have satellite imagery and stuff to 
so the intel guys can be the bad guys and then you're playing the good guys well none of that works if you have no communications so all these people fly there and if the communication don't work they're all standing around so there's an exercise to them it's real world for you yeah so you learn a lot a lot get a lot of pressure and a lot of you know, a lot of, of uh, late nights trying to make sure everything works. Same thing as data centers. You know, you're, when data centers are up and running, you know, that's all fine, fun and games. And if they're not, thousands of people can't do any work because they're waiting on you to, you know, get the gens running or whatever it is. So was, uh, what's the enlisted person? Like if 11 Bravo's infantry, what was? Um, so we had um, 25 series, 25 Bravo's, 25 Charlie's. Those are the, um, uh, then I'm talking about the Army. Yeah. Are those uh, like the IT guys? The yeah, they're the IT guys. Yeah, okay. and you can join the Army and be an IT guy. You know, they they have that MOS all the time, and they're always looking for those guys. Uh, and they, they have a whole, you know, you can make it all the way up to Sergeant Major, up to E9, sure. through those MOSs of, of putting all that. And they're really, you know, the the military's communications and stuff is pretty sophisticated, as, as much as anywhere else. You know, it's even harder because... Like for Desert Storm or some of these old battles in history books now, but you know the whole army is in the middle of a freaking desert. There's nothing there, yeah. so you can't run to go get parts or anything. You know you have to put it all on the ground. So nobody's talking to anybody unless you have your systems up. So, so where were you at during some of those times? I mean, when did you get out of the army? Oh six. I was in eighty six to two thousand six, like and twenty years. When you retired, were you a colonel? No. I was prior service, so I retired as a major. Uh Um, And, you know, I kind of got to the place. I could have kept going, but I was like, you know what? I want to try something different. You know, again, my my itchiness to try to do something Uh out of always something different. So I had a chance to, you know, get out in 06. And um, Iraq was going on, but I was in Lewis, so I really wasn't heading that way. They didn't have any assignments going that way. So... I thought it was a good time to pop, and then I end up in Iraq as a contractor right afterwards. Anyway, so um, but <laughs> so you were trying to avoid that, and then you end up. No, I wasn't. I'm trying to avoid it. I just <laughs> thought it was a good time to to move on because I, 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 if I would have been in a unit that was deploying, I never would have left it. I mean, I never am going to leave a unit as they're going into combat. That sure. just wasn't going to happen. But I wasn't really slated for any of that at the time, so I was like, all right, well, if I'm going to go, I might as well go. What was some of the coolest things you did when you were in the army? Um. You know, I spent a lot of time in Special Forces, um, jumped from a lot of great airplanes, um, and uh, went to went to a few different countries. So th- those were all, you know, awesome? I, spent, I spent time in Europe. We used to do um, with a tank battalion, and that, that ended up in, in Iraq at the time and later, and um, we got lost from Germany to Iraq. Uh, but, you know, there's just, you see a, you, I don't think anybody goes through a military career without seeing... You know, because they're always moving everybody. You know, every sure. three years, either you're moving or your boss is moving every 18 months. So three years, you're going to Germany. Three years, you're going to Italy or, you know, U.S. or some other post. So I really, I like travel. So I like the new cultures and changes. And So where did you end up? So, like when you graduated from OCS, where did they send you? I went to Germany. And then, um, well, Fort Gordon, George is home of the Signal Corps. So you went there for six months for training and then end up in Germany in a tank battalion. Um, and, and you were married at the time. You have any married, kids yet? No, no, we had no children. And she was a cop still, or she? Yeah, no, she finally quit as we were going to get ready to move, and uh, we were going to start a family, you know. And so we went to Germany, and then just 
you know, the wall fell. This is back in the 90s. Oh, you were there when the wall fell down, huh? Yeah, it was when the wall fell down, and, you know, we were watching it. And then they started, everybody's going home, right? We're, we're sending units back to the States. It's all done. Then Iraq starts happening, right? Then Saddam starts raising his head. And uh, so we end up in Iraq um, on Christmas Day. I flew, I flew into Iraq on Christmas Day and sent Kelly home with a newborn baby, and she spent a couple months at home. But... Um, Back to Seattle, I guess. Yeah, yeah, but um, then spent all the desert storm with the with the tank battalion running through the desert, all funny. Was that cool? Um, yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. You're in a Humvee, you know, you're in a soft shelled Humvee in their own tanks. So <laughs> when they say they're going to run through the artillery and keep going, you're like, no, I'm not doing. That. I'm gonna, I'm gonna all that pinging you hear on the side of your tank goes right through a soft Humvee. So we're not going to do that, but. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, you feel this camaraderie of this huge force going, you know, it's and and some, you know, as things happen, people do get killed. So it isn't like it's all fun and games. But um, at the time, it was something that I thought, you know, needed to happen. And so it was, you know, you feel you're on the right side of history at this thing. Sure. As you go through it. Um, How long did it last? I mean, it- well, the actual battle, I mean, lasted only like a week and a half. Yeah. I mean, we wept. It was so fast. We were, you know, nonstop for like four days with no rest. But then, um, but the whole thing was, and then we stayed another five months in the desert making sure it stayed that way. Just to make sure that there was no. Uh, yeah, like- Saddam was still, you know, again, we didn't go into Iraq. So at the time, George Bush Sr. had the coalition. Pushing him out of Kuwait. Out of Kuwait. Remember that? Yeah. So yeah. we were pushing him out of Kuwait, got to the border. And then Schwarzkopf and all these guys negotiated with Saddam, and he was killing Kurds and everyone else sure. at the time. So his own people were trying to revolt. And again, years later, of course, if we would have taken care of it then, it sure. been something different. But so we stayed on the border for about five months, and then we flew. Then we all finally got home. And home was back in Georgia? Germany. Germany at the time. So you got to go back to Germany. Yeah, and then we then we went across the U.S. You know, went to different units around the world. How long were you stationed in Germany for? Three years. Just about three years. Most of the, most of the Army assignments are three years. Did you ever go check out, like, the Berlin Wall after it yeah. went down? Yeah. Was, I mean, it was just falling down, you know, yeah. so it was still a little hard, to, but that was still going on. And, and we also had young kids, so we didn't get to travel as much as sure. anyone who's got a one-year-old knows. You don't put them in a car for very long if you can help it. Unless you're on the Autobahn, then you could go Mach Yeah, 10. you can, but still, the kid's <laughs> no. just screaming. No, I hear you. And then when you came, you, was that your only overseas duty? that we Went you, to Naples, Italy. Spent. How was that? That was working for NATO. Um, so, yeah, that was supposed to be, you know, we're off at noon every day because it's hot. And they don't have air conditioning in the NATO buildings. And then Sarajevo happened. Oh. So we ran 24-hour ops the whole time. And I spent seven months in, or six months in Sarajevo. Really? So, I mean, you know, that was a, definitely a coalition of a lot of people running around, you know, doing things. So. And as a signal officer, or signal yeah, board. you know, again, you have Germans, Italians, Americans, all putting their communication systems together to make them talk. It's as bad as trying to get Apple and you know and uh, and uh, Microsoft to work on the same OS at the same time. You know that doesn't always work very well. Sure. <laughs> so, sure, we did all that, and then um, you know, so then you got to keep that all systems up and running for all those guys. And, Was that a cool job though? I mean, um, what did you learn? Yeah. What did you gain from that that you were able to take with you? Into well, I mean, anytime you work with something outside your, uh, you know, you you come up with a great plan, and then of course you have to change it. Sure. Right. So you're always trying to change or make something work that hasn't done before, um, and you 
you're always trying to make it better or make it so that, um, you know, for them, it's just your, your senior leadership is trying to get something accomplished. And sometimes they'll come up with ideas that you, you know, that you have to figure out how to make it work. You know, they, as in typical, a lot of people don't understand IT, don't understand radios, but they are in charge. And so they want things to work just like data centers. They like want to build, it's like magic. So either you make it magic happen or you try to work around so that it looks like the magic's happening. Sure. It's, uh, that's the most stressful part, right? Is when you have someone that's in charge asking for, unre or they have unrealistic expectations, I should say, because they simply don't understand what it takes to bring something to life sometimes yeah i mean you know i think it's it's to be where you have to teach them what's realistic or you know they stretch you too you know you haven't thought of it and they they didn't they Challenge just you. they just came up with this idea so why can't we make it happen and until you absolutely say it can't work you know you defy physics or something then it's true try it out there's benefits to that having someone that scratch the paint with you all the time but when you, uh, so you, you did Sarajevo and you did Kuwait and then what else? Um, for, uh, for combat tours, those, uh, I did, that was, um, then I was in Bosnia for a little while too, cause there was a little spillover from that. Sure. So we spent a little time in Bosnia. Where were you on like September 11th? How about that? I was sitting out in Fort Lewis, Washington, out in the middle of the, on, on an exercise at Fort, in, uh, in the woods. Really? And uh, yeah, we had heard F-16 screaming over our heads because they're coming out of Portland. And um, Really? Like, yeah, they, they are the cap for, air cap for the West Coast, you know? So they were breaking the sound barriers, screaming up here, and we are like, what's going on? That'd um, been awesome, though. I mean, I, I was at Camp Pendleton like oh. a few days after, yeah. and there was a lot of show of force, you know, a um, lot of... Um, a lot of really cool maneuvering that you'd get to see from the planes, but more importantly, like coming off of the, if you were standing on the, like Assault Craft Unit 5, which is right along Interstate 5, yeah, yeah, north and yeah. south. And if you are standing there, you would see a whole fleet of like 50 helicopters, different types coming in formation, because they were obviously working on patterns and stuff. But man, if you're not seeing those things, it's so impressive to see the power of American military, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, we, I mean, you know, you lock down all those bases. We just happened to be on, on on base at the time, so, but guys were stuck alongside the freeway trying to get on base for hours and uh, literally even 12 if they were, hours. So yeah, because they, you know, right after 9-11, we thought, we didn't know what was Put going a hold on, on right? everything. Yeah, the planes were being grounded. We didn't know where the attacks were, so they just shut every base down. And um, Interesting. So it was it was kind of a, a tough one for a while. I didn't realize they shut the bases down. Well, they, I mean, you know, they... I say they they closed the gates and you had to go through full, you know, full yeah. opening of the trunks and going through your car and everything sure. else. So that would take, you know, 10 minutes a car. Yeah. You have a thousand cars lined up. You know, you're going to be there hours before you get in the gate. But interesting. Um, it was all an interesting, you know, time. And then, of course, then we figured out what was going on. And then it, you know, was deployed uh, around the world or wherever we were going to be. So... Did you end up getting deployed as a byproduct of that? Um, no, again, you know, that was kind of the, the end of my career. So now that was September 11, 2002. So you went with the company. And then unit. 2006, Fort Lewis was more looking towards Korea, you know, and, and we're defending sure. of the Asia side. So they were trying to keep those guys in place so that you didn't want to pull all your troops towards, you know, 
and then leave leave east leave asia wide open mm -hmm. so um stayed there pretty much the last three or four years of my career and then and then once i i retired then i ended up as a contractor and went over there as and Iraq and did a year over there. Well, where were all like so? Were, were did you have a kid born in every country type of thing? So or? yeah, for a while, every time we moved, we got another child. I was like, man, we gotta stop this. Stop. So moving. I have three girls. Uh, first one was born in Germany. Second one was born in Monterey, California, and then the third one was born in Seattle. So what They're was in about, Monterey? What were you? What was that duty station? That was Fort Ord, California. That okay. used to be a big base. There was probably about six years there that I never. Uh, got transferred off a of base. I get, it it closed around me. So as in Germany, we all started closing down all the bases, and I was like one of the last guys out of there. Really moved to, moved to Fort Ord, Light Infantry Battalion. Spent three years there, and then Fort Ord was decommissioned, and it started to implode. They shut all the units down. Um, Interesting. And so when we were shutting down, you know, we the army and everyone's going through these. We didn't need as many units. You know, the, the Cold War was supposedly over. And we don't need everybody in Germany. We don't need all those units there. And we don't need all these America on this units in America. So we can have less battalions, less infantry, less armor. Is so. this like the first stage of sequestration? Is that what that was? Probably. Yeah. Yeah. Then they came up with the base closures after that. That was, you know, more emotional, more political. You know, you can shut an army, the army, navy, they can shut units down if they, you know, the the manpower is how they don't want it to be or whatever they can change. But shutting a base down is really yeah. political. You know? Oh, for sure. Because so many people work there from the state and Congress gets involved and all that stuff. So so uh, along this whole time, what were you learning the most when you were in the Army? I mean, obviously leadership stuff, but from a technology perspective, do you feel like you were getting, were you up to speed as everything was evolving? Um, No. I mean, I mean, you know, it's like saying, are you up to speed on all technology today? I mean, you know, it's so big. There's so many different aspects that you could, I mean, I was, I was for my little, my little slice of the world of, of radios and satellite communications and all that stuff. I was pretty much on top of what was going on there. Servers were so brand new, you know, and they were starting to come in and especially deployable servers out in, into a combat vehicles and stuff. Um, that was that was something you know we brought in contractors to help out with that and um and then running you know it isn't isn't any good just to have a computer there you have to be able or a server there you have to be able to pass the information so you have fiber tra tactical fiber which you hadn't used before and then you got to have microwaves or satellite to shoot to your next so the other guys know what's going on as well so there's a lot of aspects you know but that sounds like if you guys are rolling that out for combat you guys are probably getting not headline privileges, but you were seeing things early. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we were getting some new stuff. And, you know, it's kind of like you can use your, your backbone, your road for a lot of things. You know, when they built the roads in the 1920s or something, they didn't know they had Ferraris would run on them. They just knew there would be a road, you know. And sure. So you're getting the road down, you know, kind of like we do with data centers now. You know, you we don't know what's going to be in the future for data centers, but we are we're setting that path there for – Future the next generations to come and other, you know, technology. What was the coolest thing you learned in all that IT stuff? Um, you know, I don't know. If, I mean, I love the, I, I just love the whole um, aspects of, of bringing it all together, you know, between the satellite communications to the servers, to the, you know, to the radios and, and bringing it all into one system. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, we, we break it up in the civilian world now. We have, 
you know, we have people that just do fiber or they just do background stuff. I guess what I'm trying to get at is when you left the army, what made you have that skill set that said, I'm going to work for this contractor and I'm going to go back to Iraq. And why did you do that versus knowing that you lived in like the headquarters of one of the largest tech companies or a few of them by based in two? Well, I didn't think I would have anything to do with software or, or with the, with the companies. Cause you know, they're software, right? Microsoft software. That's what everybody knows them for. They don't know them for construction or anything else, right? At the time, and same thing with Apple or all of them, they're all software companies. So if you're a software writer, which I am not, or, you know, I, then, then I could see a future, but I didn't see, and maybe I'm just too short-sighted. I, all I could see with those guys is I'm not a software guy. So I, I have no, no reason to, you know, even apply for those kind of jobs. And Iraq, well, I mean, what works, worked for his contracting for me was your, your skill sets, right? You're used to being deployed. You're used to, you know, if there's incoming, you're used to that, or, you know, it's, mm -hmm. you're not going to freak out. And, um, you're used to working 12 hour days in a, in a cramped environment or whatever, you know, and sleeping in hooches and you're just more used to it than a civilian person who's never been in the military would be. Yeah. So the skill set worked really well. And the, my job there was, I was liaison to the secretary general communications. So we went in there and set up our, their version of the Pentagon. So they have a civilian side and a military side. So they had the military guys walking side by side with the Iraqi military. So on the civilian side, they wanted people to be their liaisons. So they end up getting a bunch of retired military guys. And then, so now you're a civilian and now you're walking along with them, um, helping them set up what, you know, a, a, a communication school so they can teach, teach communication to the guys and buying radios and, you know, just setting up an army because they had, you know, didn't have much at the time. Now, either we destroyed it or it was so old and, you know, that was no good. And, you know, when we, when I first got there, they're still using walk, you know, walkie talkies and so on. And the, and the, and, um, you know, all the bad guys would just listen in so they could hear what the guys were saying as they're maneuvering. So really they didn't have any cons, con, um, you know, any, any kind when of, you got there as a civilian, you mean? Yeah. When I got there Cause, as a civilian. Cause that was what, right, late 06, 07? Oh, yeah. Oh six. Yeah. I mean, the Iraqi military was still just starting to stand up. Remember, they 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 came in there and they wiped out the Iraqi military. You know, we won the war, and then they said, "Okay, we're not going to have a military anymore." So they sent all those people home, which is, you know, the history books is very controversial. And sure. should they have done that, they let all these young guys with no pay go home, and then they just sat there and they said, "This sucks. You know, I can't even feed my family." So they became, yeah, insurgents. Yep. So you're kind of. You know, anyway, um, so we started rebuilding that. You know, we gave them Humvees and we gave them some radios. And we start, but, you know, then they had to start using those things and understanding that. And they're used to using walkie-talkies. It's a lot easier. And But, you know, you have to, they have to understand that the bad guys are listening to you talk, you know. So when you say, oh, everybody meet over here, well, they're going to meet you there too with a bunch of bullets. So uh, when you got out and you retired, how long? I mean, did you already have that job lined up before you got out? No, I was like on terminal leave. So the army has, you know, your, your vacation pay. Sure. I was burning up vacation pay. Didn't really know what I was going to do. How much terminal leave did you have? Uh, I think the most you can have in the military is 90 days. Really? That's the most you can carry over. Maybe it's 60 days. I thought it was, it was like, more uh, than that. No, they only roll. allow you, you know, you have a use or lose up to so much. I think it was 90 days. So um, you had 90, you, I mean, it sounds like you... Yeah, so you pretty much check out 90 days ahead of your 
if you've saved up as much as you can. Yeah. And then, so you're really out of the military, but you're still getting paid benefits. Are right. Covered. You're still getting all that for the next 90 days and then sure. you're done. So I happened to get this job offer right after I got started. So I literally landed in Kuwait my last week at terminal leave. So I was <laughs> double dipping for like a week. That's kind of cool. And then, um, Who was it? I mean, are you allowed to say, or you mentioned well, was, government contractor? It used to be called MPRI which was an old um, consulting company by a bunch of ex-military officers who I think it got bought out by, I think, L3 Communications. But it was focused on, like, communications. No, it was, it was they were focused on um, professional development of foreign countries' military. Oh. So they'd hire ex-colonels and generals and other people and to teach around the world skill sets learned in the U.S. military. Sure. Hopefully friendly, friendly armies. But, you know, anything from military intel and, you know, the U.S. government's always putting out contracts. We need, and this was happened to be one of the big contracts, of course, you know, at the time, um, you know, Iraq was the biggest thing going on. So there was not only logistics for our troops, but also how do we stand up the Iraqi so they can stand on their own so we can get the heck out. Sure. And so that was just one of their contracts that they had was was helping the, veterans. Yeah, and, and mm -hmm. happen, helping the Pentag their Pentagon stand up and learn to be, because, you know, Saddam would just make rule, just say, okay, we're going to do this, and the generals would go do it. There's no Pentagon. Yeah. There's no budget. You know, there's none of that. So now when you give people votes and generals are making votes and making decisions, you know, it totally rocks their world, you know, yeah. changes good or bad. So we're trying to advise them on the best. And of course, a lot of it was our money, too. U.S. government gives the Iraqi money to spend, but let them decide how it's going to be spent. So, you know, you just crawl, walk, run, so, all those things. So when you got out, you started, you went over there, you were telling me an interesting story that you uh, check into the base, but you're technically still Oh, active. yeah, so my ID card, I had a contractor ID with the same social, so when they zipped it in to say I'd arrived, you know, they're keeping track of everybody, it went back to Army Finance, and they called my wife and said, hey, we're going to pull your your husband's fi uh, retirement because we heard, you know, we, we find out he deployed. And we don't, you know, we want to pay him combat pay. They thought I they lost it or something. And so she had to explain, no, 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 he's retiring. He's so, because, um, you know, the Army, you never mess with your pay. Once you get going to one bank account, you never mess with it. The whole yeah. time you're in, don't touch your pay. So anyway, they, and, they finally figured it out. And don't over-celebrate. Because they will eventually they overpay will, yeah. you on accident. They pay you a nickel more than you're supposed to. Within about five years, somebody will catch it. And they'll scoop it right scoop out. Scoop it all out at one shot. There were guys I served with that they, um, I think they just thought it was like, man, I won the lotto. Like, I, I got overpaid. It was awesome, blah, 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 blah. And, and then they're out partying. And, you know, yeah, pissing all away. And then they get told, hey, you're not going to get paid again for the next two months because we're going to catch Well, it's up. good if you're single, right? You live in the dorms or in the barracks, barracks you know. And, eating at the chow hall. Yeah, eating at the chow hall. You don't care. You know, okay, you don't get any pay. But if you got a family, then it's like now you guys got problems with mommy and ain't got no money for the next month because you all got that extra 500 bucks for three or three months or something. Sure. No, no pay due. I'll tell you, so. um, there was a guy that I served with. He definitely tried to live by the way it was designed, right? So he marched to Chow Hall for all of his meals. He only used the gym on base. I mean, like everything, because it's in theory, it's all provided by you. you sure. Know, you don't need, in theory, you don't need much. And he lived by that. And I mean, I envied it in some ways because he was just creating a platform of stability, I guess, for himself. But there's no way he had as much fun as I did. 
<laughs> I had I had a, a guy working in Iraq as a contractor who would he was the joke is he would take anybody's old T shirts or anything and he never spent a dime. And he was there five years as a contractor in Iraq and he went to Thailand and went to um, Vietnam and bought a a uh, resort. I was like a whole village. Yeah. He's he he had like seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars cash. Yeah. Because he never used a nickel and took it all and now he lives in Vietnam. But yeah, I mean, you know, it's how disciplined you, you, you are. You could you could work the system, I guess, is what I was saying. That's there, was, right. <laughs> there was always some people that were working the system better than others, right? And then but that's awesome. So you came out, you went to work for this company. It sounds like they got sucked up by level three, you said. And then yeah. you were there. How long were you in Iraq? Just, I'm only good for about a year in these things. You know, when you're working 12 hour days and all that, I just, the problem, I mean, to me, the, the problem with contracting is there's no future in it. You know, it, you could do it as long as you want to keep doing just that job, but you're yeah. not going to move up to another position or, you know, you, there's no, it's, that's the job and you yeah. get paid really well. So do it and like it or do it or move on. And so near the end of it, I was ready to move on. And so, I I mean, I just started throwing my resume out there and um, it got to uh, some guys at Microsoft because I had some friends from, the, again, military guys, and they passed it around. And um, this is like in 2007, 2008. Yeah. So um, I'll do my shout out to Mr. Ford. So Steve Ford, um, got my resume uh he was working at microsoft and bill gates had had his big epiphany that this internet thing's taken off and we got to get involved and we're not going to send discs out for updates anymore you know we're going to get into this internet so we need a data center so then microsoft started scrambling to build a data center and so we did it in quincy just down the road from redmond washington sure or eastern washington where where electricity is cheap and um so he was trying to put a team together so he got my resume and then he his story is he called me in Iraq and I was really belligerent. Like, I believe it. I, I, I don't know why. <laughs> He's like, I didn't. I see. It. I acted like I really didn't want the job and I was bothering him. And how did like, he find how you? How would I do that? Um, so we had a mutual friend. Okay. Um, Ex-military guys and um, I put my resume in. He goes, Hey, I should send it to you, Microsoft guy. And I said, I'm not a software guy. Again, my software thinking. I I don't know what I would do at Microsoft. You know. I, I don't write soft software. So um, what they were looking for, and Steve is a military guy. Uh, was he were, army? He was he's a, an army guy. He's a reservist? reserve colonel, or okay. he's retired now, but he was a reserve um, civil affairs guy, and um, he was um, he was looking to build a team to build data centers, but he also needed someone to herd cats, pretty much. You know, the was PM Steve role. like the HMFIC? I he, guess at the time he was the guy. Yeah. I mean, there was hardly anything of our construction in Microsoft except like three guys. And at the time, what did you guys have? You guys had a data center or two in, in Washington? We had leased, they had, uh, and I don't know all of them. Uh, there was a few lease sites, but like our Hotmail back in the 90s, well, we have Hotmail still there, but back in the day it was in a lease site just like, down the road. Like a digital or was it a COVID? No, no, no. Oh. That, I don't even think those saying, guys... Okay. It was it was it was in a warehouse slash turned into a data center. It was a local company. Um, yeah, there was before you know any of these big um, companies exist, Cyrus One or any of the other ones we can talk about. But before they even existed, um, you were on prem. You were we were on yeah, pretty much on prem or just off in in this warehouse somewhere else, and it was run by you know our local guys and all 
all every Hotmail account would connect back to that data center. Was that the main pent up demand for that data center? Was Hotmail? The one I know about was mostly, but I mean, you know, there's other data centers that are doing on campus that are doing all the software computing and all the work to build software. But for services, as I, as little, I little I know about is, um, that was really, you know, off-prem was, and they, you know, they bought Hotmail. Hotmail was a, a something invented by another company and then Microsoft bought it. Gotcha. So they brought that in. And then when he had, when Bill said, um, Bill Gates said that, you know, this internet thing's really going to take off and others got involved. And then they said all their programs had to be able to work on the internet and be more than one location. That caused a huge revolution in, in Microsoft thinking and development. Tell us, the, and, tell us that story you were, you'd once shared with me. I guess he would just like, uh, and I. Oh, Bill Gates? Yeah. Like, so Bill Gates every year, this is before, you know, back in the 90s on, way before I was there, but he would go every year, he'd go off in the woods to, you know, just read white papers and think um, quietly with no other distractions on where he wanted that company to go, even when it was a lot smaller. And so it was known every April or something, he would take two weeks or so. Without By order. himself? By himself. No, like, wife, no kids, no... No. Just go and be alone with his yeah, thoughts. Yeah, just in the woods, you know, I, I kind of think of some log cabin in the middle of nowhere. I have no idea where it was. You ever watch the Unabomber? Like, that's take right, yeah. See, that's what I think of. <laughs> no, he's probably, you know, I think he's a little softer than that. I'm sure, sure. he <laughs> probably had a lot of support staff. That, But he would just read papers, and out of that would come his thoughts. He'd write some his yeah. own white paper that would, that would go out Steer to the rest chair. of Microsoft and say, you know, I mean, Microsoft wasn't as huge. You know, for years, it was like 10,000 people or so, you know, just the, That's still the bosses. Huge. Yeah. Yeah. But not, I mean, you know, now they're 180,000. Holy know, so, cow. But that's uh, pretty, I mean, that's pretty, I like that method where he just took himself off grid with all the data that he could kind of, like all yeah. the meaningful data that he could use. And then he sat down and he just analyzed and interpreted that data until he knew exactly how to pivot the business. That's, yeah. that's pretty gangster. Yeah. And he was, um, you know, I'm sure he had a lot of people that would help him develop what white papers he's going to read. But he'd come up with, these are the important ones that I really wanted to think about and decide on. And those are the ones. I mean, it wasn't like one. It was like 50 or 60 because he's a, like even now, he'll put out his book list and stuff. I mean, he's, he reads constantly. So um, he would read through all that and make his own notes. And then when you're the CEO and owner founder of the company sure. you know whatever he says is kind of the way you're going to go so away they go and that was when the whole thing was pivoting and you know we got to get into this data center i mean we got to get into this, was that hit, this stuff. but but that was really like hey there's going to be this cloud no it was more like this is the internet we got to figure out how we're gonna you know it's going to go around the world and we're not going to have to send a disc out for updates anymore yeah we're going to do all that. I mean, you remember those early sure. things everybody had to do. And, you know, everyone's going to get on it. And we'll be able to reach all these people. And then out of that came cloud computing as a whole nother, you know, uh, I don't know if he was, if he came up with that one. Or I know he didn't come up with it, but I don't know if he made those decisions or it was mm. he already gone by then. But, I mean, Azure then shifted this cloud computing that came years later. But first it was just, you know, there was just a, because, you know, we were all on dial up. Yeah. Everybody was on dial up and early and, and you could finally start getting to people that were 
So when Steve, though, you guys had a mutual friend, and you were in Iraq as a contractor, I guess, and yeah. he was looking for full-time employees or a contractor? Contracting. I mean, we were looking for guys to to do help out with these data centers. But what was and, he um, like? Because back then they weren't really even probably called. I mean, they were data centers, but they weren't quite like we see data centers now, right? So although this one was, this is we still have an operation. This is one of our big data centers. Um, you so know, when you started working for Microsoft, was like uh, was this before the like the Kevin Timmons did like the coop? Oh, right? way before that. Really? Okay. So they were one of our very first. We built two of them exactly the same. One, one, one in Quincy, one in San Antonio. So, and, uh, so can I ask a nerdy question? When you, I know I'm all over the place here, but it's the bourbon. So bear with me. It's your podcast, bro. I'll just, you know, <laughs> I'll go anywhere we're going. So when you first talked to, it was Steve Ford. Do you still keep up with him? Yep. He and I talk every once in a while. You know, he's, he's running around the East Coast with, uh, with another company not to be named. Sure. But uh, no, he's doing, he's doing well. He's, uh, is he still up in that same region? I mean, he no, he's the, East Coast. He is. Yeah, he's he owns the whole Eastern region. Oh I mean, wow! He's doing so a lot he of had to relocate. A lot of data centers. I don't know. I think he flies over there. You know. I got you. Airplanes work real good. <laughs> Supposedly. Yeah. So uh, when he talked to you, did you interview with anybody else? Um. Yeah. Actually, I, I and uh, there was a hospital that was looking for a data center administrator or data center operations guy in Bremerton, Washington, right out where we talked about before. And they interviewed me too. And I always told them, I'm the most interesting interview you have because literally they were calling me on a cell phone and I had helicopters flying over. I was in the green zone and I'd say, hold on, hold on. And they're all freaking out thinking I have incoming <laughs> fire. And so, um, yeah, they had a system where all inside the green zone, which is around where the embassy was, um, they had cell phone service and it was a direct line to New Jersey. So your cell phone, you could, you had a New Jersey phone number, but the government was running the satellite over so there. No one so had to pay long distance. Nobody paid you. long distance. No one connect, you know, you just, so like I could, I could talk to my family off, you know, a New Jersey phone call. That's awesome. So, so when I'm, when I met, did you interview with anyone else? Like how many of the people that you interviewed with when you were trying to get on with Microsoft are still oh. Microsoft? Oh, yeah. So when I like, finally got home, I had to do an eight-hours interview, which was extremely painful. I thought it would be a little more fun than it was. but um, Was it in Redmond? Where you had yeah, to yeah. It was like an hour for eight different guys, you know, so eight hours. And I was like, you know, you tell the same stories after a while. And Microsoft does a it's, – it's, it's probably a great idea. Is you don't interview with just the person um, or just the group that you'd work with. You, you interview with other people. Like you might have a software guy interview you because he's looking at another perspective. And you might have a, a engineer, you know, a, a data center design engineer talking to you and talk about design a little. And they all get different perspectives. And then the hiring manager sees their perspectives and gets their comments. And then he can decide on if this person is, you know, what you thought he was, you know, and you did he could have answered all the right questions for you, but then somebody else brought up something that gave you pause or made you even more interested in the guy or whatever, or girl. Um, so, you know, you hit it from different perspectives. So they try to hit you with five or six different interviews when you do it. Was that more to see if it was a cultural fit? Like you ever? Um, maybe. I mean, a little bit. I, I'm thinking about it as I do it now. Now I'm on the other side of the fence, right? I don't 
we do a little bit of culture. You see how you're going to get along with the team, but also to see how well-rounded you might, you might fit somewhere else too. I mean, you might not fit exactly oh. what I need, but the data center engineering team might absolutely love you and go, dude, I just interviewed this guy and we need to pull them in, you know, and I'll say, Hey, he's not right for me. And so they go, well, Hey, can I have them? And so, you know, they get slid over there. So it's, it's also share the wealth, but it's also to give the hire the hiring manager has a final say, but the hiring manager gets input from all these different people and to get away from the group think, you know, in the mindset that we're, you know, all doing is talking about construction. You get a few other people talking, you, or their thoughts, you you get a better perspective on the person. Or you hear things that you didn't even think about asking that, hey, you know, by the way, this this guy has this degree, you know, and this engineering, did you even know that? And he goes, no, I didn't even brought it, brought it up. Interesting. So, so, who, uh, so who is still there that you may have interviewed with? Not many, not many. I mean, there's there's some great, great Americans. Kevin Williams, another one, and Sean James are the two that I can think of that have been there almost from the very beginning. From, now, Sean James is the guy that does the under, he's the submarine. He's an R&D guy. Yeah. Yeah, he, uh, like he says, he sits around, smokes a bowl, and thinks about new ideas. On, but he's a Navy best. nuke, is that what he yeah, was? Yeah, yeah, old Navy boomer. Okay. So he was one of, one of the very early ones that think about putting a, servers in a in a in a submarine but now it in it's in the, in a chamber right and put it in the, water. in the water right yeah how's yeah. it working out um you know i i just see every once in a while they've run with it it's gone they did uh like a two-year study on it and um that'd be kind of a cool program i mean i don't know how well they wanted to keep going like you know use wave technology to to make energy you know they have they have devices that will use the wave up and down to work a chamber to to make electricity so they're thinking about that. And also when you get off the coast, you know, you can get off the coast and not hit taxes from different countries or states. And you could, if you're 20 miles off a coast and you could also move it into places. Territory. Yeah. You could also move it to a place where it needs an event for Olympics and you need all this computing power for the Olympics, but then afterwards you don't really need it. So you could bring it in for the Olympics and then move it back out and, Okay, so that's... No, they've talked about putting servers on boats and other stuff. Just, this was just a way of cooling it easier. I think that there's... A, I was reading some publication, maybe Data Center Frontier, I think. But it was talking about a group in, like, Singapore, maybe, that was doing stuff on ships. And... See, in Singapore, small island. Yeah. Crazy hard land, you know, and so anything off the coast would work out, you know, twice as much as Hong Kong. Or any of these other countries. What that, about uh, was Christian Blotti there when you? Christian was, yeah, Christian's. <clears throat> but he's been, you know, he's he's big research and development guy from way back. He's probably um, if he's been there long. I was been. just thinking about guys who are in actual construction part of it, but yeah, Christian has been very much involved in the industry from you know sure from the very beginning of it. So um, he's he's definitely led the the way we've gone in builds and in and in you know computing and everything else. So, um, so you were there when they were just, they didn't have that big of a footprint on no. data centers. And then now they're, they're one of the biggest, right? Yeah. So, so I used to go to all the data centers. I knew all the guys that used to fly around the U S and Europe or whatever and see them all. And then, you know, now we've been overcome by events and now it's, now we have literally hundreds of people, you know, you couldn't get to them all sure. um, across the U S and Asia and Europe and everywhere else. So 
Um, you know, there's, I think, I think they said they hired 500 people in the last couple months just for our construction site, our, our CLA. For real. That, yeah, that's we've FTEs really blown or contractors? Out. No, FTEs. Because that's... You've a... kind of gone away from vendors. That really? Was, so vendors were um, a lot. Google, everybody used to have a lot of vendors and not many FTEs, mm-hmm. right? And then I think there was a big lawsuit in the 90s or something and said, you, you're treating these... these um, Contractors. contractors like employees, but they don't get any benefits of an employee. Sure. So everybody's changed now to really dr- pulling everybody. And, you know, they go, they find out, especially a software guy, he has keys to the kingdom. You have him working all these years as a contractor. He's done all the software for you. He knows, the- he knows where all the dirty laundry has been, you know, and yeah. all the skeletons are. And now within minutes, he no longer works for you. He goes, works for somebody else. So they're like, man, we got to have a little more control, you know, I think. So, so that's what you know, made them Yeah, I mean, other companies, even down to their security and their maintenance guys, everybody's a FT. You know, they don't have any contractors do anything. Landscaping. proprietary data that they're trying to And it. just everything. You know, they just want to bring it on and then everybody gets the same health benefits. And, you know, you got to say this about software companies. They going over and above on, you know, benefits, you know, they, they have the best healthcare and the best, they really try hard. I mean, at least Microsoft tries unbelievably hard to make everybody as comfortable and want to stay there. I mean, it's just, it's overwhelming sometimes the amount of, you know, benefits. I try to bitch about it, but I can't, <laughs> you know, I mean, healthcare is great and, you know, they'll help you with lawyer fees if you need help with something. For really? Oh, they have adoption stuff, all sorts of of things you know that you never even heard of that if you have to go on a trip last minute and you have no one to take your child they'll you can go with them they'll microsoft will pay for you to take your child with you and or they'll they'll pay for babysitters if you have to work late for real it's all sorts of like really that's pretty cool so uh did you i mean was microsoft one of the originators of like giving you guys a restaurant in your buildings and feeding i don't know no i think you know, Google, I think Google and those guys have it like this, free food for them. No, oh, for sure. Um, and we don't have that, but I don't know, the last thing I need is more food. But, um, <laughs> you know, they but pay me good enough. I can buy my own sandwich. But um, they all, I mean, you know, because they get tired of people driving off. And then, you know, it also helps the company. If you have enough people, you want to keep, keep there, everybody production. on campus. Yeah, yeah it turns into a 20-minute or a two-hour lunch, you know. So, but they do an outstanding job. I mean. Tell me a cool It's kind of like the military somewhat. I mean, you know, they try to be, the military has, you know, your own quality, of life. own quality of life and has your own food places, you know, to keep everybody there and yeah. everybody goes back to work. And That's so, so true. it's, it's uh, you know, it's a nonstop kind of deal. When you started with Microsoft, you were a contractor for how, many, how long? Yeah, I, I say there's, there's um, claw prints or nail prints as they drug me into Microsoft at the time because I, I love being a contractor. So I was like almost eight years what working you like as a contractor. Um, you know, just totally independent. You know, you're on project, you get paid, you'll take care of your health care. And again, because I was retired military, as we always say, the yeah. best part of your retirement is your health care. Sure. I mean, the amount of money that, that families have to pay for health care, you know, independently, COBRA and all that is just unbelievable that we get for free in the military. And you're retired, you get it for free, you know, so. 
So being a contractor made a lot of sense if you retired because you have the yeah, healthcare. I, yeah, I have healthcare. I don't have to worry about that. Were you a standalone? Like, were you just a contractor? Like, no, I work for a company. Enterprise? Okay, so yeah, I mean, Microsoft doesn't really like um, or doesn't you know they don't want to have all these single contracting companies out there. They want to have bigger companies that bring in a lot of people at once. I mean, you know, there just gets to be too many. So um, I worked for another company, but it was it was it was a great contracting gig. And then you know the. I just like doing it and I could work on the projects. And then it just got to be where they're bringing everybody in. And so I hung out as long as I could. And then I, then I came into Microsoft and so it was all good. Yeah. I, you happy that you made the change? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can't, the, the, probably I got, I got away with a lot of things early on in our development of these, our construction, you know, that isn't allowed now. That's like all what? the finance guys will tell oh. me, you know, like, Oh, but, you know, just, working so many hours in a week and, and flying to different places. And it's just a lot more, they have guys on site, you know, you don't have to fly to another site. And, uh, you know, that drives me nuts. I always like going to the, you know, you want to around. see them. I want to see them. And I, you know, and things are slow. I want to go to another site and work over there for a while. Sure. Come back. And, but we have so, you know, our sites are getting so big, you know, it used to be there were 20 megawatts or less. And now we're having 60 at a shot, you know, going up. And so, there's a lot more work going on. So you really need somebody there. What do you think is some of the crazy things that are driving the industry in that way? There's a never ending need, right? I mean, every, you and I didn't grow up with, with a phone in our hands, saving 700 pictures of the same thing, <laughs> you know, that you share with other people who save another 700 of the same thing. So um, the need for data just keeps exploding. Think, you know, internet of things, sure. you know, now our, Freaking refrigerators are connected in. So um, that need keeps getting bigger. And then I think the Fortune 500 companies and a lot of the companies have, have bought in to the, I'm not a data center company. I'm not a server company. So I don't want to run model. that. I want to be, I want to make Coca-Cola. I don't make servers. So you do the servers, I'll do the Coca-Cola and you know, away we go. And I think more and more companies, and they're getting used to that, um, you know, just paying rent. I mean, it's all it's all financial driven somehow, but buying millions of dollars worth of servers and replacing them all the time and keeping it up twenty four seven, or just pay rent. Yeah, just and have it on and, demand. And oh, by the way, you're geographically diverse. You have all your all your data will be backed up somewhere else, so you don't have to own two or three data centers. So, did they when you were there and you were watching this whole evolution, this massive shift take place? Yeah, was there anybody that was they had their fingers on it? at the earliest stages that said, Hey, listen, we need to brace ourselves because Azure is launching or arbitrarily, but like, yeah. like the adoption of X will be huge now because of, you know, yeah, no, I video think, streaming. I don't know. I don't know if there's any one thing. I mean, I think a lot of people were looking, we have, I just call them all our black magics, um, you know, smoke and mirrors guys that are looking at projections trying to figure out how much, how many, how many megawatts we're going to need in the next quarter of the next year. And that goes off sales and everything else going on. But, um, you know, like you don't know what Xbox is going to produce or when, what their Christmas release is and how many more subscribers they're going to need. And so they're going to need all this more data center space. I mean, it all trickles down, you know, sure. every new device, every new thing causes more data to be needed. Every new customer. And as we expand, you know, we talked a little about the government's getting into it, so it keeps getting bigger and bigger as as we keep, um, 
needing more and more bandwidth for all these. And we, you know, we've only, we in America, we think everybody's connected all the time and all that, but you know, lots of Africa and, and Asia and Europe still have no internet or have very little, and they're not even close to being connected and having the amount of data downloaded as we do. Really? So, oh, I think, I think the data center use worldwide is like 8% or something. Compared really? to, yeah, I mean, we're all connected, but when you get, you know, there's swaths of the whole continent of Africa, except for certain places, you don't know, capital cities, but it's you get epic. outside, have nothing. <laughs> that's not bad. So, you know, that's, of course, where the low orbiting satellite, Elon Musk and Google and other people are getting into it. They're trying to bring the masses in so that they can get to the internet and get to that knowledge and, you know, all our schools that are online. They want to bring all this in, and that just takes more and more bandwidth and more and more servers and more and more, you know, processing speeds. And so there's, I mean, we're in a booming industry. We're in the right place. So, so and you guys are fam guy. I mean, you guys are, you know, one of the biggest players in fam guys. So with that end, watching this massive explosion that you guys do and then this big company that you guys were in, like you said, when you were trying to look into it, and you're like, I'm not a software guy. Yeah. Now, what is Microsoft in terms of, uh, they're not just a software company anymore, obviously, right? They create hardware and they're a data center and a cloud company and all those other things that are in the middle, right? But yeah. what do you see, uh, like, what do you see that has been the greatest change for you in that time since that evolution? Because you've seen some massive shifts. Well, I think, yeah, for the company itself, they've really, I mean, Steve Ballmer used to told a story that he went out to Quincy and called his dad and said, no, we're a real company. Cause his dad always said, oh yeah, you, you guys do software. You're not a real, you know, manufacturing, you know, you manufacture software, which is digits, you know, there's not real. And, oh, wow. and so he was out there and like, no, we got a real data center. You know, it's, this is where the, this is where we're really manufacturing. Yeah, and manufacturing so, um, so, you know, that's been a huge shift on the amount of, of buildings and, and how they've got involved. But, um, you know, and it's, it's really gotten away from software guys. I mean, it's still, that's still the core. That's where the money is. And that's Microsoft will always be there for that. But for our side of the house, all the, all the critical environments and all these things we've had to add in to keep, you know, the second and third order effects, um, keeps getting bigger and more and more demand. And so they have to deal with where are we getting these skill sets and our operations teams has had to you know, gone from one data center to hundreds and, you know, the thousands of guys running 24 seven operations has blown operations to a huge, you know, huge size of, of force. And during like COVID, those guys are still working 24 seven and sleeping in data centers and doing all those things. So it's been an interesting shift to watch all these, you know, almost to a manufacturing on our side, you know, cause to keep a data center running, you got to have all those guys working together. And, um, you know, they can't go home at night where a software guy can work his hours and go home. I keep picking because I'm picking on software guys, but. Sure. Um, but you guys have uh, out, I mean, in addition to all that stuff, because you have grown and exploded in such a massive data center presence, there's a lot of pressure from groups like you to uh, have a really strong commitment to sustainability as an example. Yeah. You're, well, you know, I think that's turned into... Um, I think a lot of software companies or a lot of, of these IT companies have got into sustainability and, and green and, and what can we do to help save this yeah, planet? Less water. So, yeah. So we're, we're tracking all our, um, all our, not, 
we used to flush 100,000 gallons a day in some of our data centers. And now it's all recycling. It's all coming back and being used again. And it's just the amount of uh, sustainability has has really gone up. We now own um, recycle. We built recycling plants at our data centers, and the first one's just opening. And um, they're taking all the because the servers are only good for four or five years. You know, depending on how long they want to use them for. And then uh, they, you know, so we're at millions of servers that are going to come offline every few. Years, and yeah. so yeah, now they're going to tear them all down and take the chips out of them, take the the metals out of them, and recycle them to the right places instead of just sending them where they could end up in a landfill or something, you know. So it's been interesting to watch. How... Can they recycle some of those materials? I know they could smelt like the metals and stuff like that, but what about like the, the microchips? Do they? Yeah, they... I think some, I mean, chips don't always burn up. You know, after two or three years, the hard drives and some of those, the fans might be all used up, but the chip is still somewhat oh, newer so technology. find some value in it? Yeah, so they can reuse, I don't know if we reuse them in our servers, but you know, second and third tier, there's servers, definitely an aftermarket for it. Yeah. yeah, there's a huge aftermarket to use them again, especially if you're a group that's just burning through those things like a miner of some kind yeah. or something. Right. So they'll use those and use chips and motherboards and all that other stuff. So, um, you know, and then once you start doing that, people come up with more and more uses for that. When there was no when there was no material to use, no one really thought about how could we use it. But now, you get the mindset of what can we do with this. And, you know, people come up with, well, damn, well, we could take this ch- motherboard and use it for this instead and recycle the whole thing. What, uh, so you get to Microsoft, you get in the industry, you're loving the data center stuff, you're just liking what you're doing, but what else are you learning about the ecosystem? Because by then, I mean, I don't remember when we met, what did you say, seven, eight years ago maybe? I don't know. Yeah, it's been a while. Um, you were working at, was it Cyrus One maybe, or I was at no, Nova? I think yeah, I think you're Nova. Okay. And it's probably you and Kent. Were you and Kent? Like, yeah, good old were, Ken Anderson. You guys were piecing. Shout carrots. out. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So go. he was he was uh, running around. We were we were doing. He was doing a lot of construction. I was doing the the. We have a we have a group that takes the data center and like turns it in. I say turn it into Microsoft data center. So we bring in the network systems that are unique to us specifically compared to just a a, a building. So I'm not always involved with installation of the building itself, but more of the IT side of the house, bringing in our own networking, our own DAS systems and all that stuff. So there's always a little partnership that we, we kind of run around and do those things. But How did you meet Kent? Did you happen to interview Kent when he was going through? No, Cause, no. Because you were there for, I mean, you've been there for 15 years. But how long was Kent there for? Uh, he was... So he was working on a roof in Quincy, Washington. Shut uh, up. He was the program manager to replace the roof. Shut and up. And so, yeah. And so uh, he did a good enough job, I guess. They decided. He was like, like, he gave me some secret recipe to, like, see these walls. Like, if you want to make these walls, he's giving me some recipe, you know, coffee grounds and, you know, all kinds of things. And He's a. He's quite the little tinker. And, yeah. So he, uh, yeah. So we've known each other for a while. And, um. He was a project manager. I mean, we're a lot of project management, right? None of us are swinging hammers or. Was he a contractor at first? Like you he were was, first? yeah, okay. for about a, a year or so, two years maybe, and then he became an employee, and uh, he was doing a lot of the leases. He and I did a lot of leases together, so we no do. Kidding. We like do site selection stuff. Microsoft does, you know, I don't know, eighty twenty or ninety ten, or you know, it changes that year to year, uh, the amount of what we build and what we lease. So 
That's always changing. So the bigger we, number is is the builds. Okay, you majority of the ones that you guys have are yours. Yeah, yeah. We've we've decided. You know, and other people like like uh, Oracle doesn't want to own them. They want to have. They want to do leases. That might change in the future or whatever. But so, um, but our finance and our guys wanted to own it and depreciate it and sure. all those issues that help with those tax burden. So. Um, They've gone with building them ourselves. I mean, you know, because they don't. He doesn't really. Other than now, we we try to, and then we can make we can make changes on our own. Like we did the concrete floors. We were one of the very first, I think, to do concrete Slow floors on grade for instead of raised floors. Yeah, and that's kind of because we owned it, so we could make it. And you know, where a lot of leases still stay with for raised SLA floor because that's what they're used to. That's what all the customers are used to seeing. And so they want to see a raised floor with, you know, with the cold air coming up through the ceiling, through the grids. And that's just what they're used to. So you throw a concrete floor at them and they're like, whoa, wait a minute, this is different. And, yeah, you know, and when you're a customer, when you're trying to appease multiple customers, you really don't know who that who's going to be there. You're going to build towards a certain standard. Whereas we are being very specific for our builds. We can cut out a lot of the costs and, and go to bare bones and know what we're going to put in there so sure that's driven the driven our concrete floors john driven a lot of cost savings to drive that me millions per megawatt down so kent started by being the pm that was replacing a roof on one of your data yep. centers and yep. then somehow he earned the confidence of like whoever the yep. board was it, at the time or yeah or... no no the, there was a few other pms that were working with them and um uh, John Raddick was another guy. We have a little consortium here. They do a lot of motorcycle rides together. But um, he I was like there. I know that name. Why do I know that name? John. Um, he's worked for Microsoft. He's done a. He's done a lot of. Uh, he just took over some GC construction on Whitman Hitfield. Hitfield Whitman. Okay, so he left I'll Microsoft and he's GC now. So he he's bro broken. Yeah, he left Microsoft. He's doing his own thing with a lot of few other companies now. So. Head of construction of a few companies, so he worked for Jacobs and. Sure. But anyway, uh, we yeah we saw a lot of there was a lot of potential in Mr. Kent, and so he's now he's he's doing great things for others. I mean, because Kent when he left, he took a break and he went to I think he was Advantage for a while, right? Yeah, yeah, he did really well Advantage, and then got an opportunity to go to Yonder and. Um, awesome. Away he went, and they have a pretty stacked house over there at Yonder right now. Don't yeah, they? they're. I don't, do they do they make anything? Have you seen anything yet? Well. I'm supposed, from what I'm told, they're going to be monsters here in a little bit. And based on some of the talent they have, I wouldn't be surprised. They build something. Oh, there's or a I chicken mean, coop or something. You know who knows? Ooh, the chicken coop. I think if you were to sit down, have you ever asked Larry about that? He's got a strong opinion on that chicken coop data center. I think. Yeah, he's I think got he's a, a huge fan. On a lot of things. <laughs> he sure does, doesn't he? <laughs> I he uh, big country. He he was one of the first guys. He and JT were my first podcast. I know. Oh, did you hear it? Oh, I saw that one. Oh, yeah? Yep, yep, yep. I saw that was, that. That was a shit show, right? Because we had... Really? That's hard to believe that those... Between the three of you, it wouldn't turn into a shit show. I didn't see that coming, especially when we finished. We were we were plowing through the brown water faster in those days. Like, I could not keep... Like, JT thought we were doing shots, I think. Because we literally were only drinking out of Dixie Cups. It's hard like, to believe yeah. JT would think that. And that was odd. It's not his type. It's oh. not his kind, but... It's funny because, you know, learned a lot from JT. I knew JT when he was, um, he was on electrical. He was on one of our sites. He Shut was up. just, yeah, he was, he was a nobody, man. He was showing up to surfer wearing on a longboard, came rolling up on a longboard. And we're like, 
who is the hell is this guy? It'll still be And he's him. the electrical engineer. And he's like, we are in deep shit. Um, he knows his shit, though. And he, within weeks, was making that thing hum. And, uh, you know, he's done nothing but projection higher ever since. So, yeah, he's, yeah, he's a stud. I was having a conversation with him about the first time I met him. I vividly remember the first time I met him. I was at Advantage Data Center in Santa Clara, probably. It's probably some program that some company that you and I probably both know that was in that data center. And yep. I, um, you know, he walked in and Jason Green, I think at first had kind of prepped me with uh, what to expect. And he was not what I expected when we first hung out. And then it wasn't until later on we'd gone out. And then I was like, now I understand. You he's know, not so, the electrical engineer you thought he was? No, no, he he, he definitely knew how to he show lockdown. He doesn't come across as that. But when you, he's very, uh, like when you get him around professional stuff, he he's oh. like, he yeah he knocks it out of the park. He's yeah. like, uh, have you ever seen uh, old school? Remember Will Ferrell? Yeah, old school is trying to do the debate, and then when he gets done saying all this really intelligent shit, he like blacks out. Like what happened? Yeah, that was my impression of JT when we'd go into meetings and he would oh. just knock it out of the park, and then and then he'd turn back into uh, you know JT. Right, and then I was like, I, I could respect that, right? But I mean, Laramie was the same way. I mean, all of us idiots were, we grew up in this space like a long time ago together. I could tell you the first time I met LD, I, I mean, he was maybe a PM, you know, with Concept CSI, yeah. I think back then. And But it's awesome to see how far some of those guys have come. Right? Sure, oh yeah, it's been, I mean, you've seen some real skyrocketing. I think there's, there's a lot of demand out there. It's, you know, you and I were talking about how um, there's, there's billionaires out there that are looking to invest their money, and this is the growth industry. Sure. Um, I said I said it was early dot com stuff, not the bubble, not the bust. But oh, you're seeing the pent demand. But like yeah, the demand. You know, you had to you had to own a uh, not a SharePoint site. You had to own, you had to own a a uh, internet site. You know, you don't care what it did. You just have to own it. And so all these people got involved and. But, um, and that's where I see now is money is coming into this industry big time from all over. That wasn't just traditional um, IT companies. You know, it's others that are, are investing in, in data centers or investing in the market. And that's driving demand or at least driving growth. And the demand just keeps keeps going up. But that's really good for us, in my opinion, because you have a massive need for capital in this space. Yeah. And now it you have- It takes a lot of capital. For sure, right? But now you're having all kinds of groups that have not been invested in this space before. They're like, hey, look, and it's driving down. You know, uh, the cost of money is getting more efficient in some cases because of that, right? And you have more options. But now you, uh, with that capital, you have groups that are able to, you know, start buying or standing up a, a VMI strategy, you know, two, three years out now. So they're laying out deposits that far out for just to get gear or land banking more. Or you're seeing a lot of things which again, to me, based on where I sit on the industry, you're on the enterprise end user. We deal with operators as well. I'm on the ecosystem side where I'm one of those partners that are helping you guys bring your visions to life. What we get to see is where uh, the bottleneck is, you know, for sure. labor or materials. And you're seeing it too, right? Oh, materials, unbelievable right now. But um, our demand is gonna be um, just continue to keep growing. You know, I just don't see an end anytime soon to this thing. So, and, but really the problem is going to be personnel. I think it's easier to, it's easier to build something than it is to find personnel to run something that takes a, a lot longer, uh, train of, you know, of 
of growth, schools and and what do you think people. we're gonna have to do? I mean, because well, I mean, you and I talked about you know the finding new new streams. Of, I mean, right now the problem in America a lot of times is we well, one of the problems in America is um, everybody wants to go to college, right? Nobody wants to be a plumber, electrician, or a, you know doesn't want to do any of those hard jobs, and um, that's where the demand is. And the same thing in our field. We have a huge issue for critical environments. You know, we need we need electricians and we need the the HVACs and we need all those guys to run those things, and the IT guys to run the twenty four seven ops. You know, of, of these sites. But why do we have to solve it with people? I mean, look, I do agree that there's a lot of people that go to college because they think that that's what the best way to go guarantee some sort of success in their future. But there are amazingly successful people in this space that have never set foot on college Absolutely. a day in their life. I do like this industry for that. Um, I also, like I was telling someone else, I'm like, I think this industry, you know, to a veteran is, is the greatest thing they could find because there's really not, there's not too many companies that don't have value or see value in those transitioning veterans coming out, right? right? That are like the 25 series you're talking about or the 11 Bravos that converted. I mean, I, I said this and I say it, I say it often, you know, when I first got into this space, I was a UPS service engineer and they were looking for Air Force guys and Navy guys and our girls and just the type of training that we went through te tended to lend itself to that advantage of being like a service technician. And then I just kind of continued to evolve and spend enough time on construction sites where I was starting to pick up construction. And and I see that it's really not a skill set that you can't learn, you know, OJT like you were talking about. Like if you're immersed on a construction site for a year, in spite of yourself, you're going to learn a lot. Would you sure. agree? And that's where you learn the dialect as well. Yeah. And no, I, I agree. I just see this huge uh, opportunity for a lot of younger people to get involved as this as this keeps growing. Because we need to, you know, the guys that started out six or seven years ago are now leading teams because, one, either you, you had to grow up and – as soon as you could grow up, we, we need you to take over those teams because we're expanding. Instead of one in a town, now there's 10 data centers in a town, so they're all running 24-7. Well, do you remember when, like, 10 megawatts was a lot? Yeah, I remember when two or four megawatts was a lot. I mean, you know, we just had these data centers, that, and that was all we really needed, you know, at the time. And I mean, yeah. it's, I mean, you know, we'll also remember when there was only three or four data centers in all the U.S. we were working on, you know, instead of. 50 at the time. What was it like so. sitting front and center? And we're going to go back. I know we're all over the place again because I want to go back to that labor thing because I do believe that, like, the best, some of the best construction people we've ever had um, had no construction experience. We hired them coming out of the military and we put them, you know, six months on the job. We hire these people and don't put them, we don't charge our clients with them for the first few months because we want them to just be immersed, you know, to learn the right. language, so to speak. I have found that their their temperament is exceptional. Army is great because you've been in, like you said, you could be in one of these high stressful zones and all kinds of stuff. You guys could be, you know, taking, you know, mortar rounds to your compound, and you yeah. guys are still like one of my favorite stories is Jesse on my team was their uh, their command post was being attacked, but he and a buddy were playing Xbox, and. Uh, it was, I mean, they only stopped because a round came through and hit their Xbox and, and shot it. And then they lost their mind. So then they both get up, run out there with their underwear on, you know, and they're 
guns and grenade launchers and start you know just losing their mind and then i guess they sent a picture of it and microsoft <laughs> sent them a new one how cool is that story <laughs> they sent some we got around we got around could we have another one and they did they said hey we sent a picture and an explanation of what happened to our to our xbox that it got shot and here's a bullet round that hit it and i guess microsoft sent them a new one <laughs> post so he's pretty loyal to, to the xbox systems there you go yeah but, there's a little but, but my message is is those construction projects, I mean, you've been on a lot. Yep. There's not a single construction project that goes as planned. There's always a problem with something, right? There's going to be something. There's going to, we'll, we'll ring it out during IST and we'll find a, a flaw in the design or maybe settings on some sort of equipment that got overlooked or maybe the equipment, you know, blew up in the middle of testing or, you know, I've had supply chain things where, you know, transformers are falling off the back of the truck. There's always a problem of some kind. Yeah. It's just how you how do you deal with the emotional frustration of challenges because it's a different type of stress than being shot at, right? It's just everyone's gonna go home, no one's gonna die today. That's right. So trying to figure out how do well, we hopefully. how do we deescalate to make sure that the, no one's declaring war on each other with their contracts and stuff. Let's just figure out how to solve the problem and, and still climb through and you know fulfill the mission. I think that like. There's a lot of Navy folks in this space, and I think that they would agree that they are the best when it comes to like linear checking, like in operations, where mm -hmm. running SOPs and MOPs and all those things. That's like danger tag outs. There's a lot of things that they have a lot of discipline with, but winging it, so to speak, is not always their greatest strength. I'm not saying they can't, but it takes a hybrid leader to be able to be the subject matter expert as well as the triage expert, right? And right. I've always found like the Marines and the Army guys. Ten uh, and I, look, one of the one of the strongest Ovita candidates we hired was an aviation bosun's mate, and she was in a situation where she's launching planes all the time and capturing planes, and there's always a problem, you know. And there, she was amazing at thinking quick on her feet and pivoting if there was mm -hmm. a challenge. But these combat soldiers or people that have been in those those combat zones, they tend to they they just have a different mindset, I think, when they come to the program. Right? I think it's a pressure thing. Because, you know, you have to be able to, to take the pressure and then m mitigate the pressure. Yeah. Otherwise, all these data centers and all, everyone, every time we always said, we started data center, we're, always, we're already behind. Because yeah. the demand didn't work out like we thought. And so now the demand is more than we need, more than we thought it was going to be sooner than we wanted. So we're always behind. So everybody's driving to build as fast as you can without problems. And it just gets into how do you mitigate that pressure or you get burned out and you, you move on and say, I don't want to deal with this. I want to go build an office, you know, or a apartment complex or something. Or Because the pressure's not so high. Because it's not, you know, it's not, it's not as such a big, big money. I mean, big money causes big pressure. And if you can't dissipate that and, and learn to how you're going to get move that move on, then. And also, you're right, dealing with, if no one's shooting over your head, I always said, if I don't have rounds going over my head, I'm not going to get that spun up. Yeah. Famous last words. I have been known to get spun up, but um, yeah, it just gets to be. It just gets to. I we get a lot of guys in the military. We have a lot of PMs that are construction guys that are ex. There's a, a, a couple of guys um, that are drill sergeants that are that are first sergeant in the Marine Corps. I mean, we have a lot of these guys um, that are just used to that and and used to taking the mantle of leadership and then being able to run with that. Um, so that is always, always a great one to have, you know, and then, and being able to say what they don't know and yeah. you know that you don't have to be the leader, know everything. You just have to be able to, and then you don't have, 
know that someone else that you are leading knows it. Let them give them the space to fix that problem and then, you know, drive on, give them the credit and keep on going. That doesn't mean that you're less of a leader. It just means that you are able to handle this group and, you know, keep everybody going in the same direction. And I think that's so, a unique skill set. Some branches are better than that than others. Would you agree? Yeah, I just think you have to be, right? You know, like on a Navy, in my opinion, a Navy, you're on a boat. Or on it, and so everything you do from sleeping to eating to fighting your war is going to be on this boat, and you're out in the middle of nowhere, and you're not going to get any help. And um, you know, whereas other places, army, you have to deploy somewhere. You have you have all these different skill sets that aren't no, you can't control. You really rely more on other people. Yeah, well, you know, maybe you can control your surroundings, and I mean, other than where the boat is at the sure. moment, but you can control stuff on board and the systems and you have your checklist, whereas you can try to control, but there's so many things out of your control when you deploy into the field. So you have to be able to be quick on your feet. So I guess that helps make people more, you know, the more you do it, it's, it's like a muscle movement, you know, and the thing you do, you get better at and that you learn to. I think it's philosophy. I think it's a mindset. Yeah. Like one nice. of our other strongest, I mean, we've had a lot of success with 11 Bravos in construction. We hired a lady that came out of the Coast Guard, and she was a damage controlman. And I don't know if you have any understanding of what that is, but you know, if you're in the Coast Guard, the Navy damage controlmen are basically the firefighters and the people that fix the ship when it's damaged, like if it gets hit by a torpedo or something. So they have right. to do everything from the welding to everything, but they're conditioned mentally to be a multi-purpose tool, uh, right? Okay. And she uh, came in and she was like, look, I don't know much about these things, and we're like, it's like Spanish. If I left you in Mexico City for a couple months, you'd come back speaking beautifully, you know, fluent Spanish without a problem, I'm sure, because you would do it because you have to kind of survive, right? And we put her on a program with uh, um, the client happened to be, the guy in charge happened to be former Army, and he just happened to have the temperament to learn how to train. And he'd, he'd been around long enough to where he's, the military does teach you how to like learn, and it teaches you how to lead and be led. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And he was great at figuring out, like, okay, here's somebody that has the aptitude, the energy, and the hunger to learn these things. That's all I need. So blank canvas, I'll teach him the rest of these things. Sure. And she took whatever skills she had from that, and they transcended into the construction side. And now she's at a program level instead of just, like, a project level for a different customer now. But she has an appetite to continuously evolve, and we're going to keep supporting her and blocking and tackling because that's what they want to do. But that's the solution, you know, to there's not a lot of college classes to teach you about how to go make an impact day one, minute one in the no. data center space. So where do you find those skills? Obviously, it's easier to take people that are being dumped into the trades and then growing them up to where you're at, you know, the level of some of these guys that we know that could speak data centers forwards and backwards, even as they're evolving. But it gets it. What do you have if you're not bringing them from the trades? Right. You have what other options it's college or the military and you have a couple thousand people leaving the military every month. Yeah. I just don't think you get, I mean, college is, you know, you're, everyone's young too. You're coming out at 22 or something. So you now got a lot of book smart. You don't have a lot of experience. And of course that's what everyone is looking for is, well, how do I get the experience? I haven't worked. So, um, but the military definitely gives them, uh, you have quite the experience. You might not have all the book knowledge anymore, but now you have the experience and what you've learned, you can translate because you've had to do that in the military. Translate your skill, what you learned in the classroom, into real world and make it work. Because you don't get to say no. 
You don't get to say, I can't do it. You get to say, go figure it out. So the same thing's happening in our construction and in our operation sides of ops. They have to figure out how to make it work and keep up. And, you know, they're under a lot of stress of 24-7. You can never go down. Sure. You know, we can't be 99%. We have to be five nines. You know, five nines of operational. So you can't even blip. Yeah. Ever. Um, that's pretty tough. But, so. but how do you get people? I think this is what I say is coming out of the military, you do have experience in this space. Yeah. It's just you're, you're pressure tested in other ways, right? Our definition of mission critical, I always said, was measuring mortality, right? Not downtime. So how do you take people that have the, the emotional maturity, but they just don't understand the dialect of the space yet? And then once they apply their emotional capabilities to this vertical instead of shooting people maybe then it, it transcends they could they could just yeah. figure out a way to map it out and well and if we do a good job i mean you know we have to keep i mean and everyone's working this to to take younger guys and and younger girls and 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 get them into this industry and teach them those skills that they if if you have half the skills we'll teach you the other half yeah you know and instead of and there's even you know we've talked about it and uh, and Microsoft and others have talked about having their own schools to teach CE services or whatever. Um, and I don't think they've gotten to that yet, but they're, you know, we're reaching out wherever we can to see this, this site get bigger and bigger and, and more guys involved. And, you know, we don't, we don't, we can't stick with one, one group. You know, you can't just say, okay, I'm only going to hire from this because we're just, we need too many. Yeah. And the demand is too much. So we have to keep reaching out, looking at all these cracks and crevices and, pulling people out of, you know, you know, a welder decides he wants to get in the services and move on. And, and, you know, someone's got to do these works and they work their way up and run into 24 seven ops. You know, it's, it's just, I just think it's, it's something, what I love about the military guys is they all have the mindset that they want it. They want to be into something better or not better, but different because they're getting out. They want to do something they've learned and they're driving on to the next domain on where they're going to be successful. And they already have that mindset. Um, and the, both men and women are just, are just a, a shoulder, head and shoulders above what we see other places. So I'm always, I'm loving going there with recruiting, you know, cycles and seeing those guys and opening their mind to it. Cause you know, that is in a world is so different that a lot of people have never heard of it. Yeah. So you got to kind of teach them what the heck data center is. And then why would you ever be in it? Just like me and software, you know, I, why do I want to work with Microsoft? It's a software company. Yeah. I don't know anything about software and I'm not, I'm not going to learn, you know, I'm, that's not my, it's not my thing. I'm not interested in, in writing software. So why would I join? But when you open that up, all of a sudden they go, generator mechanics? Really? You have generator mechanics? Yeah. We got lots of generators that need maintenance all the time. Sure. And electricians and, you know, all those things that, all those skill sets that they have. So. I love I love trying to pull those guys in. Let me ask you a question. I like to ask everybody: Is what do you tell people you do? I say I big I I build the cloud. I build big buildings full of servers. I got you. But um, do people ever understand that? Well, you know, everyone's heard of the cloud, right? They know their phones data goes somewhere, and they know they know their you know the internet goes somewhere. It's such so, a prevalent term that they've all. The cloud. Yeah. We, we're now in a place that people know the cloud. Yeah. So when you say, well, that cloud, actually, you got to build that cloud. And that all that stuff has to be held somewhere. 
So your pictures of your grandpa got to be somewhere. So we're building where that somewhere is. And then we're geographically diverse, so you never lose it. Well, and shifting back away from labor and and back to like what you saw, you know, in your 15 years of growth at Microsoft from you guys had very small footprints of data centers. And then you yeah. went in and somewhere along the line, your leadership said, hey, we really have to triple down on this new strategy. Well, as you're, I mean, you know, we had started Bing. Don't forget, Bing's still out there. I tell my kids all the time, don't tell me you're Googling, you're Binging. <laughs> they all look at me, yeah. Anyway, Bing is still out there. So that was one of our very first, you know, really big expansions was Bing because we were taking on the world. You know, a lot of this, you have to be big or you can't make a dent at all. Sure. And then if, we don't bring all our dirty laundry out. We had phones for a while. So there was a whole phone network, you know, that expanded the name for data centers. And then we then they really connected into Azure. And, we're, and we've always, you know, Microsoft has always been like, you know, Apple's always been the play. play. You know, you have your iPad, you have all these things for fun. And then Microsoft's always, to me, has always been the business side, you know, the sure. Outlook and the Word and Excel. And, and so when they got into this cloud computing and then they get into renting, you know, you, you just, you pay for cloud bursting. Yeah. You pay for, or you pay for your using word or Excel or anything. You use 365, right? Yeah. So you just pay for that every year. That's blown up, you know, our usage. And, and that's really what took off on our data center. Now we're trying to, as everyone else is trying to do, AWS is one of the big leaders on that too. They, they want to get your businesses away from, you do what you do best, let us do what we do best. Sure. So that's blown, really blown up data centers. And so it's just going to continue to get bigger. Well, they, I believe that their big, their big uplift was when they were picking up government work, right? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if it's one of their biggest ones. They were definitely the first ones. Um, and, you know, give all kudos to where it's due. AWS has done a lot of leading in, in, um, cloud computing and, and early on, especially with the government, they were the only players for a long time. They saw it and got involved. And so it's been a, it's been a really a catch up, you know, for us. Who is the biggest um, cloud provider right now? AWS. Who's number two? We are. I got you. And then who's number three? I don't know. I think Oracle. I got you. I think they're the. So it, it's like a race then between. So I will be. On what? To see if you can have sure. the most data center capacity or presence to be able to support that cloud burst. Um, yeah, of course it's a race because a sales guy will say, hey, I just sold to this company and they're going to need, you know, 100 terabytes or whatever, you know, every every five minutes or something like that and, um, in Atlanta. And, you know, the last thing that they want to hear is, well, we can't cover down. We, well, we can't do that. Sure. You know, so they were like, are you are you serious? We're going to lose all this. So we're always, you know, sales guys are out selling. They want to sell Azure to the world, which is great. Um, but it's on us to keep it so that they can do that. And, and you know, I'm sure there's a, a, lot of, a lot of maneuvering going on all the time on where all the data is being stored to give everybody what's needed, you know, until the capacity comes online. So um, that's a whole nother world that I don't know anything about. But um, So of the time, I mean, what what have you seen in in your 15 years? What have been some of the greatest changes or 
biggest challenges? Well, I, I mean, you know, to get in the weeds, like mechanically, we had all closed loop cooling, you know, and, and it was all, you know, run on, you know, hundreds and thousands of gallons of water flowing through to get chiller plants going and all that. And then we went to evaporative cooling, um, you know, which totally changed the game and how much, how much water we're using and how much, how much, uh, how much it costs to build a data center when you can go to that just alone. Um, and then, you know, so cooling is, I mean, the three things we need is power cooling, you know, and we got to get rid of all that and you got to have data. We have that to, yep. it produces the data, right? So the, the, the power and the cooling is, is one of our biggest problems and then keeping it consistent. So those changes alone have saved millions and millions of dollars and less and faster to build quicker times manufacturing. You know, we've been able to modulize a lot of stuff. So you bring a whole electrical skid mount, slide it in the door, or you put it on the outside, made it a whole lot less people. So instead of having 900 people on a site, you only need like 200 on a site. And then the manufacturers make the, the electrical room and connect, you know, have it all commissioned and connect it into the side of the data center and up you go. The modular. So is, yeah, uh, the modulars um, have really made a difference in speed and, and so on in quality. Yeah. Quality is the biggest thing that you probably get out of that. Well, yeah, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to ground it out. You don't have to, you know, you have all those guys in there and, and, and we're not building data centers in the middle of towns where a lot of guys are a lot of times. Yeah. So when you're building in the middle of nowhere you, to find 300 electricians, to be on a site is tough. Yeah. Um, this way you do it somewhere else and then you only need 50 electricians to connect it up. Well, it's also built in a static environment, which allows it's, you know, you have people mm -hmm. only focus on that one thing. They're not being forced around the sob site to let other people, other trades, Cleaner, or, you know, neater. work around them. Yeah. yeah. So some of the greatest things that you've got to see for that time I and mean, what are some of the greatest things that you've learned? So um, I think some of the, just seeing those changes and seeing how we can drive down the cost, both um, environmentally, you know, make a less environmental impact because we're huge amount of power consumption, right? So that's, everyone's working on that one um, and, and how we can make them quicker and, and cheaper um, is some of the biggest challenges. I just see that. And there's always multiple ways of doing it. So I think we're learning that there isn't one good way in, in, you know, just like servers, you're always looking for the next new technology that's going to drive you to even better. Um, so keeping your eyes open for all that and not being afraid to make those changes. You know, we have the advantage, of course, is our, our Microsoft money. They decide what they're going to do with it and how they're going to, and they're willing to take that challenge. You know, as such, it says, you know, be bold, be able to make those decisions, even if it's, even if maybe you'll fail one time, there could be so many advantages of winning that you're, you, you don't want to hold back. So they want to keep driving that. Where at least sites, you know, they have to kind of go up the status quo. So I think the biggest uh, advantages of us doing it is we kind of lead the the world in, um, you know, on, on, on innovations and technology changes and what the next step's going to be. Um, but that's, you know, you see a lot of at least providers coming up with some really great ideas too because they're, they don't have the huge business driving them for profit. So they got to really look for where they're going to make their money, you know, and drive down the cost. When you and Kent were out doing leases, like 
what what is it that you would look for in those operators? Like, um, is it their ability to scale you up from a density perspective, or getting their product online the fastest? I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, it's a lot of speed, speed to market, and then quality. I mean, you know, again, you can never go down. Yeah. So we got to make sure that quality is there, that they've done their due diligence, and and the team behind it is is going to be able to handle that kind of input, you know, and and drive to have us fully operational and and be able to um you know and the other one of the one of the biggest things we've all got into is safety i mean we are huge and it's and it's really challenges a lot of companies when we arrive because we want them to be at our safety limits at our standards and so we will drive anyone who is working with us to our safety standard um and you know people have really We've tried to change the environment on construction, um, doing things and really drive the safety to a new level. And I think a lot of times they have, and sometimes it's really paying the butt. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, we never want to build anything. We don't send somebody home every night. Yeah. So, um, and we take a huge emotional event. If somebody somebody gets hurt or some, something happens, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to dig into every little detail yeah, of why it lesson happened. Learn. Yeah. So, and other people do that. I just think we've done it. We don't do any kind of lip service to it. We really, we will stop a whole site. We will stop everything because we don't like what we see. And we think it could be on the verge of not being safe. I got you. So what are some of the things that you guys have done to like, I mean, I've known you for a long time. I forget where we met, you know, I mean, in terms of, I know how long ago we met, but probably a trade show or I don't who knows right but you guys see one of the be, sites was it one of the sites I think we just yeah we were all walking the site and you were one of the guys showing it could have been I mean like we, that's how that's how long it, it seems like we've been in this space for a long time yeah. right and way before DCAC I know remember that <laughs> back in the day I remember uh you were there during the Gary Busey years too right stop it oh, do not man. pull up that video <laughs> that was an awesome listen <laughs> I remember you sitting on stage well I was in the front row and I remember you I vividly remember you flipping me off <laughs> that <laughs> but was how did you get me on with this crazy guy oh yeah for sure but I um I don't take all the credit for that I I think Chris Kincaid he's a former Air Force guy. yes he, 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 he gets blamed for due I always blame we'll him that. because it was his really good idea. And I was like, if it's a genius idea, then I'll, I'll claim it was my own. That's right. No, but but Kincaid, a real good idea. He's awesome. He was a good dude. He was, he was really cool sport about it too. I tried to get him on stage with him. And he's like, not a chance. <laughs> he was like, he knew, we kind of knew what we were dealing with. We didn't know. really know what we were dealing with at first. Train wreck. <laughs> but um, like, what else are you guys doing? I mean, like I've, I've met some of the most interesting people in this industry. Like some of my, best friends are in this space right and i've got to grow through this industry with them and it sounds like yeah. you've been in the, i mean you've been with one company but it's had such massive growth you've got to do a lot of different things like you're not i've loved it now. i mean i i think i've you know i i'm terrible at switching jobs so i mean since college i was you know all this time in the army and then i couldn't you know i couldn't get off the train and now then i got on this train and i thought i would never work for another big company again and you know and i've worked with microsoft this whole time so even though i was a contractor i I just drove like I was an employee, and sure. people were shocked when they found out I wasn't telling them what to do, and I wasn't really the the employee that I that I was. But um, yeah, I mean, I just think I love the growth, and I, you know, I love the diversity and constant change. You know, and the one one person's idea of a data center is not another person, and so it's 
really that's what I loved about leases. You know, you you see how different lease providers would do it differently. Um, and you learn from all that, you know, you learn how they would do it and say, oh, that's not a bad idea. You know, we should do this. And, um, you know, we've taken from each other. And, and so that's all fun to me. Anything new is indifferent is fun to me. Sure. I, I hate, I'm not a great rinse and repeat kind of guy. So that's why they never put me on a site to keep rolling. But um, I just think you always have to keep And maybe that's why I learned is because I can't. I have to learn something new, you know, so it's always somewhat crisis management. Sure. Please learn something new because you have to, right? So it's, it's just, it's exploding, right? You don't have a chance to. Yeah. It's fun. It's a great time to learn those things. So what are some of the, uh, what's some of the lessons, like if someone was listening to this and they had no idea and they've been in this industry for a year, right? They say, why did I listen to this? We are all over the board. I know, but that's the bourbon speaking. That's not <laughs> all us. Right, let's go. So. What, what's advice? What advice do you have for transitioning veterans first? Well, so yeah, I mean, I would really don't overlook the industry for sure. No, no matter what your background is, um, it would probably work into the industry. There's a lot of people and there's a lot of veteran organizations that want to help. Um, so really we, you know, it's, it's about your mindset and what you brought into it. So I would love veterans to keep an eye on this and, and, um, so that was what I tell them. But for anybody coming out, you know, this industry is only going to get bigger. And if you like hands-on, um, there's a, a lot of growth opportunity there. And growth also brings you to higher levels of um, employment, you know. So if it's a stagnant and you're going to stay at the same, doing the same thing every day, but we're getting bigger so much faster that we're going to want you to be a, a team leader. We want you to be a shift leader. We want you to be a, a PM or a project, a program manager, because we need those people. And we're looking for the opportunity to promote those people and move them up and have them in those positions. So I think it's, um, you know, for anybody, um, it's a great growth industry. You know, don't, don't go and be the best buggy whip maker in the world. Come into you know, what's, and, and you know, it's not, it's only going to get more. I mean, we're just talking about all these cars, you know, all the automated cars coming out and it, that's going to take data centers. That's going to take more sure. data centers closer to the edge. Sure. So now instead of these big data centers we're building now, maybe we're going to build smaller ones closer to the edge of the, of the internet for the turnaround times out to all these cars that are making these, you know, instant changes. So um, the field's not going to go away with, technology it's only getting you know and ai and all the other things that are coming they still got to have data centers so we're building the we're in the industrial revolution of the next century you know we're not building the roads and putting electricity out to farms we're building the data centers and the fiber paths and so on that will who knows what we'll ride on but i still say those connections will still be used for the next generation of technology that's going to come out yeah and listen, as we bring this home, you had mentioned something earlier that caught my attention. You're like, look, this kind of reminds me of a little bit of like the dot-com era, not the bust, but like the, the sprawl, like just like the explosive growth. Yeah, I think it's going to go, I mean, there's going to be some, I think there's going to be a technology change someday. Based on Soon. the cycle of like the 18 month cycle of chips or? Kind of that's, I mean, that was kind of like, what is it Moore's law? Anyway, um, that said that the technology is moving so fast that every 18 months you're going to double the capacity. So 
the IT, the technology is continuing to evolve and get faster. And our problems are power and heat and uh, compress, you know, and, and how, how, how much processing power do we have? So all those things are being worked on to make less power, less heat, and more processing time, which will make data centers smaller, maybe. Or we'll put more, we'll, well, we won't make them smaller. We'll just pour more data into them, right? More servers into them. So that is, that's the only thing I see slowing us down. I mean, not slowing us down, but we'll change. But we're still going to need data centers. You're They're talking not... about a change, though, with the enterprise side. That's yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah. And I measure it based on the ripple effect, right? Because then the yeah. operators are impacted, the supply chains are impacted, all the manufacturers of generators to... And that's not going to stop anytime soon. I mean, we're in big growth now. I mean, you know, if you were just making software, you could just make a software change, you know, right? And that would ripple all the way down. But we're talking about generator changes and UPS and PDU changes and all those changes that are going to take years to make a difference. And then mechanical solutions. The other, you know, the other big wave that we're going to have coming up in the next few years is, is, uh, you know, as these data centers start getting old. You don't even or or just... We have to process, you know, we have to change them out. Those PDUs have been running 24-7. You know, those electrical, all that stuff's been running. needs to be tightened up. It needs to be reviewed. Yeah. Who's going to do all that? That That's a whole other industry that's going to start going. Because, you mean, our oldest, our oldest data centers, we might, maybe 15 years old, 20 years old now. A lot of retrofits. So retrofits are going to start happening a lot more. Where's that industry? And those guys are going to come from, too, that's still part of the industry. Yeah, because so. it's different. I mean, it's a lot different. I said this on a different podcast. I'm like, building a greenfield is nothing at all like working on a live data center. Yeah. Because when you're building a greenfield, security is not a factor. The building's not live. You have a lot of things you can power up and power down. And you're not, if you have an oopsie, it's a good thing to learn from, but it's not going to bring down the building, right? Whereas if you're in a live data center and you're doing expansions and retrofits and and you're putting totally new infrastructure on a live backplane. That's where you could have challenges. Oh, huge, huge, and stay operational and make money. Yeah, it's it's extreme. Operation guys are always working about just bringing in new servers. That's hard enough, but going into electrical gear and tightening all that up and locking all that out is a huge process in time and. Where do you think the best so, place to be in the industry is right now? In the data center industry, you could be enterprise, operator, you could be ecosystem, you'd be the consultant, the broker, you could be... Uh, well, I mean, you know, it, it depends your mindset. I mean, there's money. If you're talking big money, you know, there's brokerage and, and so on. And, you know, there's people who are looking for land. There's, I mean, you know, across the world, it's a land grab going on and is. power grab. Where where are we going to build and where's, where's the power available? Um, but I just think there's... It advantages to whatever your skill set is. I don't know if there's a, a right or wrong. You know, there's so many different people that are playing that are doing just fine. You know, just got to, you got to do what you love. I mean, don't go into something because you're going after the money or you'll never be happy. So how does but, someone that, that is listening to this is not in the space right now, because we'll broadcast this out and we'll focus it towards, you know, military bases. Yeah. And hopes that we can, you know, recruit some veterans to take a look at this. Yeah. Like, hey, I'm in industrial or commercial or hospital or whatever. I mean, I started with all of that stuff. I was doing hospitals and stuff. And then yeah. trans- Critical you know, I, environment. Yeah. And, and and then I remember getting into these data centers and it's a whole other language to learn. And, you know, you're sitting in OACs and people are using languages that you don't understand. You're hitting Google right then and there in meetings trying to figure out what does that mean? And because yeah. we speak in acronyms a lot, right? So you go through and 
like how does someone who's listening to this how do they connect? You know, do they reach out to Microsoft? Seems like they probably are hiring. If you have a well, a lot, all all the guys, all the guys, all the players um, on the hyperscale have veteran. You know that hiring. What's, what's nice is veterans are, are called a minority status, right? So uh, everybody's trapped driving for a veteran hire. So if you go to any website, they'll have like my, I know for sure Microsoft has a click and say, "Are you a veteran?" You click on that and then. They'll send you in a whole nother group where you can get help and, and see what, you know, where you could fit in. Um, so, and I know everyone else is doing the same thing. So that helps just to start with that. But also there's a lot of companies, you know, Overwatch is one of the big ones. Salute's another one. There's others that mm -hmm. are, are in this industry that are trying to help specifically um, data centers. iMason's another one. Sure. So I think you just have to show interest and reach out and do some, do some. I mean, everybody has to do due diligence. Sure. That's the other thing I find. A lot of guys coming out of the military and they, they because you're so used to getting your next set of orders, I just get my orders and away I go. I don't have to really think through what I'm going to do. But now you're into a, man, I got to think through where I'm going to live and how it's going to work and what job am I going to have and who's going to pay me in the next week. So it's overwhelming sometimes the amount of changes they're hitting but they need to do their due diligence early on so that they have a chance to walk through some of those, those decision-making. Um, you know, nothing's easy. Nothing's, I mean, we, we try to hand out as much as we can, but there's still always, you got to show interest and you got to reach out and, and find that something that interests you and then pursue that. Sure. So we, I don't know. we, um, you know, we have DCAC live every year, as you yeah. know, and last year, there's always, you know, every year we have uh, like a survey of, hey, how are the speakers? And every year there's always like one speaker that always stands out more that mm -hmm. has the highest votes or whatever. And last year it was Dean, right? And Dean did, he had an amazing uh, presentation, lots of data, and he just does a really good job. He's a yeah. good order, right? And um, in addition to what he's doing as the CEO of that company, he's also the founder of iMasons. And iMasons, you know, through that platform, I've listened to him multiple times talk about the existential threat in our space is that we just simply don't have enough talent to support the, the growth and the demand, right? From the trades to the operators to the people that could build it. And a lot of these markets like Virginia, as an example, are just saturated with demand where it's, if you have a screwdriver in your garage in Virginia, you're worth a lot of money because you know how to use it, right? Well, the screwdriver can be your security clearance. <laughs> I mean, a lot of the military guys all have security clearances. In fact, mostly all of them do. And so that's worth money. And I just don't think you have to make sure they don't sell themselves short. You know, the, don't take the earliest job or the easiest job might be the you can do a lot better. And sure. if you drive a little harder, you can you can go a little further. Because everyone, man, now everyone's looking for people to work. I agree. So, But I, I'm having a hard time, like, for me... Like I had Aaron Johnson on from Sunbelt the other day, right? Yeah, awesome guy. And Sunbelt is a beast in this space, right? Without them, with all their rental gears, they wouldn't be. I mean, they're the ultimate blind spot for everything that's late or something. If something breaks, or the first call you make, and he was able to be there as they were really focusing hard on solving that problem that these operators or large enterprise groups that are building their own space, those hyperscale guys and those large uh, cola providers. They were like, like they were just offering everything they could, and they're tapped out. It seems like at all times. But in talking with him, 
he was like, listen, man, I wasn't sure. So he did what most veterans do is they leave the military and they go back home. You know, they go to whatever yeah. market they came from. Sometimes that's a data center market. You happen to be in one. Some people go back to data center or back home and that's not a data center market. They're not even a, a tier two. Or tier it's three. true. And we have to kind of capture them before that. But he has a very similar story to a lot of other people where he got out, didn't know what he was going to do, got a job working in a warehouse until he figured out what he wanted to do. And what I'm trying to do, you know, with Overwatch is we love this industry. We love data centers and we think that we're pretty good at helping build them, right? But at the same time, our greatest passion is reducing the suicide rate amongst veterans. And as I said, if a lot of these combat veterans tend to be the best at building things, you know, that, that purpose that they have, the new mission that they gain from being right. a civilian in this space, put, you know, create an environment where they feel safe still, you know, politically. Um, when you take that, and you add it to what we need, right? There's a huge, there's a huge advantage on both sides because now you have someone that has the emotional temperament that's capable of thriving in really stressful environments. But you also, uh, I think that that what most veterans want when they transition out is not only do they want to have a purpose, but they want to be doing something of significance, right? I mean, right. Think yeah. about some of the cool missions you did. You know, you're talking about Kuwait or Sarajevo or you know wherever else you've got to go. And a lot of these guys are Afghanistan, Iraq, and they're doing something that's moving the needle and will be recorded in history. It's of, of significance. So how do you do that? Well, there's this huge need, but how do we make it to where there's less people transitioning out and going and taking that $12 an hour job until they figure out how to get into this? In this, some cases, it's by accident. You happen to know a guy, Aaron happened to have a brother in the industry already. A lot of us just kind of stumbled into this space on accident in spite right. of ourselves. Right. What I want to do is take that narrative that Dean had, which is there is an existential threat, and it is that there's more demand for services than we have people that are capable of, of providing those services. And I want to create a bridge between that gap that really just fo focuses on, I don't even need 1% of the transitioning veterans getting out of the military every month, right? If we have 2,000 of those people, it'd be great to get 10% of those people, but imagine if we were able to, to capture 10% of those people every year and just help guide them into the mission critical vertical, whether they're coming to an overwatch who is really on the construction side or a salute, which really focuses on the services and the operation right. side right. or security. Right. But there's gotta be a, a bigger platform. And I think infrastructure Masons is doing a great job. Lee former, is he retired Colonel? Yep. All right. So, and you probably run with Lee, right? Yep. And I'm sure Ford runs with Lee. You guys yep. are all up in that market. So if you take it and if the, if we can, combine our messaging and our narrative well enough and leverage a platform like this or DCAC Live, then we can help guide some of these people coming out of the military, yeah. which will be mutually beneficial to both the veterans, because it does as a byproduct of giving them a new mission, new purpose, reduce their suicide rate, but it all it really helps the industry as well. So if you take our two greatest passions and you figure out a way to, to merge those two things together, it's a win-win for everybody. Don't you agree? Totally. I just think there's going to be a lot of there's a lot of opportunity there. You know, the military, at least the army, when I've been to, they have a huge transition. You know, they really drive having all these job openings and job forums. And yeah. you know, I've been involved in some of those and um, they're looking to help those guys make that decision. Um, you know, and, and the, and the guys and girls coming through there are, are interested. Um, it's a little harder sell for us, you know, because it's, a data center that they weren't thinking of, they don't know what it is compared to being a bus driver. Yeah. At, you know, or being a police officer or something that they know exactly what that is. So um, 
and that's great if they want to do that because you know I'm all, I'm all for need those too. Need those cops too, but um, you know, opening their eyes and getting them interested gives them an opportunity that they didn't know before. Um, and I get I don't think we do a really good job in the military of as they transition out to say how valuable they are. Um, they they are you know they look we want to help you with your skill set we want to drive you to help you go it out. But they are, um, I think they underrate themselves a lot of times and that drives them to just go home and yeah. take a warehouse job right where they did in high school five years before, eight years before when they, mm -hmm. they left because that's what they knew. So There's some groups, I mean, uh, Tom Furlong of Facebook, he's a Navy Academy grad and I spent time with him once talking and he goes, no, we, we actually will go to the Navy bases and set up our own little conferences because he goes, we want to go to where they're at before they they don't want to be introduced into a, maybe they do, but there was a time where he's like, we didn't want to be a part of a uh, hiring conference that where we were one of 10, you know, potential opportunities for people that were transitioning out. They could, they could interview with, we want to be the only one. Right. Well, so it's nice. Well, that's smart. But I mean, he also is in a position where he's at a pretty high altitude and airspeed and having been a veteran and seeing the value in military, he, not everybody's in that position and not everybody does see that right they're so. doing better i mean like jblm where i am out in washington they have it career centers you know and they have bigger career fairs for everybody and and i've watched the biggest groups you know around the microsoft the facebook's the googles those guys are looking you know those guys and girls are looking for those opportunities and there's veteran so it's helping it's just they're like just like me when i see that i think software <laughs> you know, and I think what, so dragging them out. Yeah. And seeing that, and he, you know, a, a generator mechanic doesn't always think he'll even walk, walk by there or pay attention. Cause that's not what he learned and that's not what he is. And he's a generator mechanic. He's a diesel generator mechanic, huge demand for those guys, but he didn't ever know that would be, we run more generators than freaking anybody, you know, sure. 24 hours. Somebody's always testing a generator. Sure. So, um, we just, just that schooling is getting the word out also helps, you know, being at those fairs just to help say what the hell you're doing. Yesterday, I was at a Cyrus One site and I ran into a guy that was in operations. And he's, he's former military. You can kind of tell by looking at him, right? So I'm like, hey, you know, which branch? And we started talking. He was a generator tech in the Army. And now, you know, now he's running a data center, right? Yeah. So it, there is transition there. It's just trying to help people understand what that looks like and how they could take those skills. And then we'll bring get the word out. I mean, we're getting bigger too, right? As this industry keeps getting bigger and bigger, the people are learning what they are. And, you know, the kids are getting smarter, right? We didn't know data centers. We didn't know I didn't. all these things because there wasn't, they didn't exist. But now they're, they're learning that as they're going in, you know, in high school, they know a little bit of where their data is going, where their, where all their photos are going sure. and all that, that we never even thought about or had the ability to know about, so. Well, the interesting thing is this, and this has been said several times, is I was speaking at a, like a seven by 24 chapter event in Virginia, I think last week, maybe the week before, and what I was saying to them was the same thing I, I say to my kids as friends when they're in the house. I'm like, there will be jobs that haven't even been invented yet right. that these people will be able to try to pursue to support the growth of this space. Right, and as long as companies like you know Facebook and Microsoft and all the other big you know, hyperscalers, as well as these big operators, continue to make these commitments, um, you know, to hire more diversity, um, getting those you can get multiple diversity boxes checked by sure. transitioning veterans. For us, 
the, one of the things that we did is on June 6th, which was the 78th anniversary of D-Day, we launched what's called Anchors of Hope, and it'll last for 97 days. And it goes all the way till September 11th, which is Patriot's Day. And our goal was to, um, we're sending out messages to 100 different partners of the industry, from general contractors to operators. And we're trying to get them to lean in and make a pledge or a commitment to hire one transitioning veteran. Mm. Right. And if we could help facilitate that, I mean, we think that'll help jumpstart because it'll the chorus sings louder than the soloist. Right. So if we could create multiple different channels. Right. To right. all these other companies that are already in this vertical and we could help create a glide path for these veterans. And it's it'll be easier to, to to transition that narrative. Right. Because I always ask you, like, what do you tell people you do? Maybe you have two narratives. Maybe it's the one to the people that are your neighbors and you're in the backyard barbecue, but maybe there's a different narrative that you have when you talk to your fellow veterans or guys that you serve sure. with. Or... Word of mouth helps. I mean, you know, the more veterans we have, and we have a lot of veterans in the industry already, but as they kick, kick it out and they all, everyone takes that, that chance to go talk to somebody else, you know, and, and try to pull those veterans in, that it will, it will uh, definitely multiply as the time goes on, I mean, and we're not all zeroed in on, we are zeroed in on veterans, but you know, there's a lot of uh, openings um, for a lot of minority statuses too, to, to bring people in that just have never thought of that. Sure. But it's opening their mind and ideas that this is something they could think about doing. Sure. Um, and so we're all, everyone's looking for that, you know, where, where's that, where's that key to open that, that mind up a little more and get them to think through it. Well, I hope more podcasts and more yeah. exchanges like this allow us to do it, right? So, we will. Well, what's the last thing? If, if someone wanted to engage with you or Microsoft, what's the trick to being successful and being able to work with a group like you guys that's so sophisticated? Um, yeah, so I always say, you know, you got to do the due diligence of looking at the, at the job sites. And, you know, I think there's 4,000 jobs openings right now at Microsoft or something like that. So I can't go and help you find that job. Sure. You got to help me, you know, and then and then reach out and say, hey, you know, I've had a few people reach out just cold and say, hey, I'm transitioning out of the military. Can you help me get in? I'm like, dude, you got to do better than that. <laughs> you know, you got to do the due diligence, do the hard work, and then come back and say, you know, and, and we have a whole site on Microsoft just for veterans. And if you put something out there saying, hey, this guy's looking for a job and here's his resume and these are the jobs he's looking at, people are jumping that all the time because they want to help. So you just have to do the due diligence and reach out and lots will reach back to you. So yeah, I'm on Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn. Come, come find so me. So people on can LinkedIn. find you, Wild Bill Clark. Yep, yeah, Bill Clark. It's my smiling face, probably a little old, younger picture than now, but you'll just have to do a little translation. So, so what about uh, what about people that are in the industry right now that have been in the industry for a couple of different years and they work for maybe a low voltage structured cabling group or a, a tradesman or equipment manufacturer and they want to go work for you? Is that a different 